Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a doof media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, while those return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and uh, here, let me just go ahead and call forth the shade of my old departed ally, Scott, the story thinker. My name is Scott Daly, and I'm excited to maybe have a body someday. This is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wildwell's world of Telltale Brothers, Super Dogs, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, we are covering chapters 9.Z and 9... Interlude. Uh, (laughs) This week, the Byron and Tristan backstory saga reaches its conclusion as Tristan Tristan deals with the consequences of his big choice. Then we move over to the most powerful woman in the world as she struggles with her identity, making difficult moral choices, and is terrified by something. Matt, this is the end of the arc with the longest arc we've ever covered. We've been doing this since August. What did you think of these two chapters? Well, these are very, very interesting um, chapters to, to cover in a single episode because obviously it's it's the final interlude in the trio of Capricorn interludes, and then we have a separate interlude which is bringing us out to a, uh, as you've pointed out, uh, a high level uh, overview of what's going on in the background and kind of perhaps priming us for moving into the next kind of act movement of the story, and. Um, fascinating way to end arc nine gleaming really uh, involved a lot of the themes that we've been talking about for these last several episodes and um, kind of a capstone on a lot of those themes. And um, for me actually uh, emphasize what those themes actually are in in some ways. Um, What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we've been talking about what we felt um, the themes of the book were since, you know, our very first episode and, and, and they are, you know, beginning to really crystallize here. We have the, these two chapters are doing a lot of heavy lifting They're They're wrapping up uh, a micro story. They're wrapping up an arc story and they're pushing us forward into the next part of these books. So, and then we are hitting these, these big ideas, these big ideas of, of, of forgiveness and what that looks like of, of how do you move on of, of identity? How do you rediscover yourself of second chances? Um, these, these are these big things that these, both of these chapters are dealing with and what this arc has dealt with and what this story has dealt with. And it really does feel to me like we are making the move into, um, I'm not going to say like the second act of, of, an overall story, but, but a new act of an overall story. We, we have set the stage, we have defined our characters, we have defined the themes and we're really, I think going to start challenging our characters a lot going forward. Um, the stakes are getting higher. Yeah. There were certainly, this was, this was an arc where almost everyone gets pushed, uh, farther than they had been pushed before in particular, Victoria, um, you know, several of our other background characters, our, our other team members kind of already had their arc where they got their interlude and that was kind of where they were pushed the hardest. But Victoria was pushed the hardest in this in this arc. And yeah. uh, and she actually, I think, um, did well. You know, she, she didn't break down. Um, yeah. So which is which is also the good. I think she grew. I think it was positive for her. Grew. Um, did you did you say grew? Um, I said gr- grew. Gr gr you shut up. Um, so I, I was trying to make it. Uh, I I got you. I got you. <laughs> you're supposed um, to. You're supposed to give me a pity laugh or something. Um, so you know, f- 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So we I mean, we've got we've got to cover these two chapters. Um, we jumped ahead a little bit, but uh, we're going to have our, our typical end of our conversation um, once we finish this where we're going to try to this is like the most daunting task we've had so far is try to take uh, these what, 17 chapters more than that, I think it was. Um, and and talk about it as one big unit. But we're going to we're going to give that a shot after we we finish with the dis- this discussion. But um, yeah. I, I this is my favorite arc of the story so far, I think. I agree. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, so uh, announcements before we move on. The Halloween costume contest will end on November 1st. So take those pictures of your costume, email those to us, and uh, the patron voters will uh, de- decide who wins that contest. And there's yeah. a cash prize. We only have one week to go when you will be listening to next week's episode. That will be the final day to turn in your stuff. Next week's episode will drop on Halloween. So uh, co- costumes. Yeah. Last last warning, I guess. Yeah. 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 Cool. Uh, so now for the community spotlight where we read what people wrote from last week's thread. And the discussion question from last week was... In this week's reading, Victoria discussed two different approaches to dealing with fear, succumbing to it or attacking it, and included the benefits of each one. We see in Carol the idea of bending to that fear, and we see in Swansong uh, fighting against that fear. Does the book take a clear side on this argument? Which one? Um, yeah, yeah and, like, and like six of you guys quoted the, the line from Dune. Um, Perfect. <laughs> which is great timing because this Friday we're going to be talking about Dune. On our Doof Media book, book Club. So 9.30 p.m. Central Time, YouTube, Dune, do that. Um, but I just thought that was really funny because I'm like in the middle of finishing up my reading and so many of you quoted that line from Dune. It was wonderful. And it's funny because that was the first thing I thought of too. Well, it, <laughs> if I'm going to be honest, Matt, I wasn't in love with this question. I, I wrote it like in kind of a hurry and um, I, it sounded good at the time, but I, I had regrets about it. But um, as always, you guys have made me feel better about the questions by your responses. I think there's some really, really brilliant, smart analysis that goes in the response to these questions. So thank you for elevating my question by answering it. Uh, good. Yes. All right. Well, let's get into those answers. All right. So uh, Slice of Pie argues that a lot of Wildo's works touch on dealing with fear. Uh, they say, I think the author really is exploring the multiple ways fear can be responded to and the likely results of each. Think about the parahuman community's response to Gold Morning, for instance. Here are all these people with world-shattering power, and they were used like puppets by Kepri. Despite knowing it was successful, knowing it was necessary, they're undoubtedly terrified both of it happening again and of what it means for humanity to see them and all their power as a paper tiger. What happens then? Yeah, so he took like a, a, a higher-level outlook at this. This whole book kind of talks about fear um, and how people deal with it. I like that. Yeah, me too. Data Snake 69 says, for my money, the best contrast in how characters handle fear is the comparison between Goddess and Taylor. Both took over the world as teenagers, and once that control broke, both were left with the very real fear that they would be hunted down and killed unless they took over again. The difference is, Goddess gave in to that fear. She couldn't handle the fear that if she lost her power, she would be easy prey for any former subjects who wanted revenge. And as a direct result, she died. Taylor, by contrast, overcame her fear. She knew she probably wasn't going to get away, but she chose to run rather than enslave everyone again. She also suffered the specific fate Goddess was afraid of, having her power taken away from her. But she lived. 
And in her own words, she can maybe learn to be okay. Yeah, but I thought I thought Taylor was dead, Matt. No, Scott, that in, that interpretation is incorrect and false <laughs> and wrong. And she's no, fine. I really like this answer, though. I mean, we, we, we've made a lot of very specific Taylor Goddess uh, comparisons. I think that the book invites these kind of comparisons. And I think this is another aspect of it is how they handled that fear, how they handled that fear of losing power of, um, uh, you know, and I think I think the book shows by goddesses goddesses handling of it was uh, poor. Yeah, right. And it's interesting because I, I don't think uh, you would say that Taylor was very often motivated by fear at, at all. Um, she she tended to put other people's concerns before hers. That was one of the things that made her heroic um, is how little self-regard she had, actually. Um, if anything, she felt more fear for other people. Yeah. I mean, I, there is going to be a question that I think brings some interesting points about Taylor and, and how she handles certain fears, though. Um, so maybe we'll, we'll pick that conversation up when we get to that, that yeah. answer. But All right. Cool. Uh, King Curley argues that there is a third approach to dealing with fear represented by rain. And they say, standing firm and serene and letting the fear pass over you. Rain has conquered his fear, the fallen and snag. Um, this means he's able to stand serene and feel the fear, but not be bowled over by it uh, or lash out against it. When the water comes for rain, he stands unmoved. When Seer tries to cow rain, he is unmoved. This also means he's able to, to support others who need it, meaning Byron can stay standing. Rain does not lash out, nor does he bend. He is unmoved by his fear and thus able to help others with their own fear. Yeah, that, that reminds me of the Dune quote quite a bit. <laughs> yes, um, I, I don't think I put the Dune quote in these answers because there's just way too many people. But I think this is one of the people that, that did mm -hmm. directly quote that. Um, cool. I, I like this. I like this view of rain a lot. I like this view of rain taking his his um, his mover power and becoming a kind of this like immovable object, you know, like this thing that stands firm um, for, for who they are and what they believe. in. I like that kind of evolution, the, the, a thing that we saw as kind of a weaker power um, is growing more and more to represent him and, and, and who he is right now. Yeah, I mean, he's literally becoming the rock. Yeah. Um, on, on which the other, uh, in this case, Byron um, relied f physically. But I mean, it's a great it's a great metaphor, too, because, you know, he, he is this guy who has kind of suffered and struggled a lot. And, and I think he he in recent we, we've remarked that in, in recent chapters, he's been in prison. So he's been a little bit less spotlighted. Um, but I'm wondering, maybe, you know, if maybe that can be a, a more of a role he, he starts to fill in um as he, you know, presumably returns to the team. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think we probably undersold the importance of him standing up to Seer in our analysis last week. I think there was just so much else going on that we didn't get to cover that very much. But I mean, that, that is a significant move for him that he he stands up to this guy. He does not back down. He, he stands strong. Um, this is a person that kind of ruled over him through fear a little bit back in in his old days. And, and that is a big change. And that's a big moment for him. Um, Hero of Old Iron also argues that there is a middle ground between the two approaches present in the question, um, saying there's a middle gr ground of holding fast and riding the storm out. And I think that this actually might be the best way to approach handling fear. Um, they also go on to kind of demonstrate how the different parts of Victoria's varying personalities might respond to fear, saying that Glory Girl would respond with aggression. Just keep punching until the object of her fear runs, dies or kills her. 
The scholar would capitulate. Fear impairs a person's ability to analyze information, and sacrificing some efficiency in the long run allows her to solve relevant problems now. The wretch would probably be split between fighting and running, going with, with which, whichever one seems easier in the moment to her. And lastly, the warrior monk is the only one who's even capable of weathering the storm. Her guiding principle is one to be centered and able to respond to the chaos of life effectively. And I think that um, I think that shows an interesting thing about like different people respond to fear differently. Different people respond to different different kinds of fear differently, which is something that someone else also answered in their question. Um, and, and I like seeing how these various forms of Victoria would respond to it a little differently. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the reason she has these different facets is basically to apply different solutions to different contexts and the types of things that make a person afraid are also very susceptible to being context dependent. So it makes perfect sense that that, that those two two things would go together. I like that a lot. Um, M. Wanson or Juanson says uh, that Victoria's aura can literally create fear. Um, yeah, they were the only person to answer the question this way. And that's kind of in the back of my mind. I was thinking about that as I asked the question. So, yeah, there's so- someone um, pointed out. I'm sorry, I'm blanking on where I had this conversation or, or where I read this. Um, but but that Vic- like back in Worm, uh, when Taylor was fighting Victoria, or really anytime Victoria was around, her aura was like this thing that was like impossible to ignore. Like it, it was, it, it was like a really, um, all I'm trying to say, I guess, is that it's a really strong power and, yeah. and Victoria doesn't actually think about it that much. Um, and probably just even now kind of systematically underemphasizes how, how much that tips the scale when she's fighting. Yeah. And I mean like her, her use of the aura, I think, is in line with the way of managing fear that her mother taught her. Right. She uses the fear aura to bend people like to to control people in a fight. She, if she wants to lash out with her aura to people that would be scared of her, she uses that so they capitulate to the fear. So I think that lines up with like her use of it lines up with what her mom told her the, or, or told her through her actions, what the proper thing to do with the things you're afraid of do, is mm-hmm. so I, I like that a lot yeah i like that and she's also kind of pointed out a few cases where you don't want to use fear against this kind of opponent like lung because they will not react the way other people will react <laughs> right um, right and uh yeah that, that's cool i like that yeah. So last week we have Tessarwat who points out that different people respond to different fears different ways. They again point back to Taylor, who um, is known for really never backing down to any kind of physical fear. Like she, she never really has any kind of physical like any kind of physical conflict. She's never afraid of it. And I think that goes back to what you were saying, Matt, is she, she, when it comes to physical harm, she's always putting other people before herself. She's willing to sacrifice herself, willing to go through all these, these things to make sure other people are okay. But when it comes to like emotional vulnerability and fears founded in that kind of emotional vulnerability, Taylor runs a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, she, she hides, she compartmentalizes, she, she shuffles that away. Um, and, and, and they contrast this with, with Golem, who's a character who seemingly is in touch with his emotions more. He's more, he's less afraid of emotional fear, but like doesn't share Taylor's, um, instinct to lash out and fight in a, in a, in a physical fear type of situation. 
Yeah, I, I like that a lot. And I think one, you know, probably one reason why I said what I said a minute ago about her not really having much fear is that she doesn't think of it as fear. Right. Um, even though it is, you know, by definition, like a negative emotion, which is causing her to flee from a situation. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah. I like that. All right. That was it for this week. Let's move right into the chapters because we got a lot, a lot to say. I think Matt texted me um, sometime a couple days ago saying something to the effect of two and a half chapters into the summary, just got to day two of Tristan's whole deal. Yeah. So uh, we got a lot to say. Yeah. So here we go. Chapter 9.z. So remember 9.x was Byron's interlude. 9.y was Byron and Tristan alternating just like their lives ending with Tristan's fateful choice to fake Byron's death. And we've been waiting to find out since then how premeditated was it? Just how bad of a guy is Tristan, really? Uh, and 9.z, Tristan's interlude, wastes little time in uh, telling us and getting us into his headspace, his his damage control. Yeah, there's there's so much I want to talk about as we go through this chapter. But the thing that I wanted to immediately broach with you here is the decision that the book makes to paint Tristan as this type of character. We've had a lot of theories and and feedback as we went through these previous two Capricorn chapters about um, what kind of a person Tristan is. Um, Tristan's been planning this for months. He must have. Tristan is this evil, soulless guy. People are saying Tristan is is very similar to Sophia. Um, I, I... I was always hesitant with these labels because it just didn't feel like something that that a book this nuanced would do. And I think we see here right at the top that it's not. Tristan, in reality, is just a dumb, rash kid who makes a dumb, rash choice. And it's not to take away from the magnitude of the choice. Like, that's what he did is horrible. It was a horrible, horrible thing. And he was probably a shitty brother before he did the horrible thing. Yeah. But but. The decision to to make him like this, to make him this complicated person, I think is is super important. And I just wanted to talk about that with you before we get into it. Yeah, I mean, you've you've pointed out before that Tristan rushes in is is kind of his, <laughs> his thing. Right. And, and this is a perfect example. Like we've so established that character trait of his, that, that he's he's the one who who bowls into the situation and tries to take charge, even when he doesn't know what he's doing. Um, in, in fact, often because he doesn't know what he's doing. Um, he's going to inject himself into the situation and just try to get a hold of it. And this is him bullying ahead into a choice that he has not thought through. Like it's so evident that he hasn't thought it through yeah. because he's thinking through it in like the 30 seconds after he's made the choice. And he's like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's I think it's so much interesting, more interesting to do it this way. Like I think there's a version of the story where you could have Tristan have premeditated this, have Tristan be as evil and bad as as many people thought he was, was as as bad as Byron thought he was. And you could still get to a point of um, of kind of forgiveness at the end of that story. You could still get there. You could still show change and forgiveness. But making Tristan a guy that made a, a bad choice, a rash bad choice and and then just doubles down on it because that's the type of person he is. It makes it so much more less about just the bad thing that Tristan did and more about the broken relationship between these two people and how we fix this relationship. And I, and I love how it comes around at the end and, and we'll get there when we get there. But 
I just think this is a beautiful end to two very, very complicated backstories. And I just I'm so happy it, it came out this way. I'm so happy that that it was so much more complicated than just Tristan is is evil. Tristan is terrible. He's the worst person. He's another Sophia. I'm, I'm so I'm so glad it's not that. Yeah, it's almost archetypal while still being entirely fresh in, in the sense that it's it's the story of, of any two people, you know, siblings are the perfect example where one of them has has wronged the other just really terribly um, and tries to dig themselves out of the situation and and ultimately gets forgiveness for, for their error. And, and like it's it's complicated and there's a lot going on, but also it feel it, you know what I mean about it feeling archetypal like it. Yeah, it's um, I mean, it's kind of Cain and Abel a little mm-hmm. bit, mm-hmm. only they, they live inside each other. Um, and, and of course the death is reversed, but okay. It's not a perfect metaphor, but, but I I see what you're meaning. Like this is, this is, you know, siblings in conflict is a, is a a tale that's been told over and over and over again. And it is taking that tale and, and making the conflict and the, the stuck together nature of being family much more literal, which is kind of what wild Bo does, which is what genre fiction does, which is why I love it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, handling things that have been discussed many times, but in a, a fascinating way that just it's sometimes it's not just about what you're telling. It's about how you tell it and the way the story weaves around these archetypal characters. Uh, it's, it's so good. Yeah. So, yeah, so the chapter is framed by headings, um, which I guess is not a thing we've never seen before, but it's, it's, it's not, not common in, in, uh, in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and the chapters are telling us how long it has been. Um, and basically this t- telegraphs to it. It starts with day zero, you know, the first day that he makes the choice, which makes us instantly ask how many days will it be by the end? Right. I mean, that's, that's the initial reaction you have. There's something so ominous about it. It's you have set the tone of the chapter in two words. Um, you, we know exactly where we're going to get here. This is going to be Tristan with Byron locked inside. It's going to be horrifying and it's going to go on for a while because if it was a week, they probably wouldn't have made the time to say day zero. If it was going to be something he reversed later that day, you know, like we've immediately said that this is going to go on for quite a bit. Yep. Uh, so Tristan, as we were saying, immediately regrets his decision, almost immediately starts thinking about whether he can walk it back, but he realizes or perhaps convinces himself that he he can't because he thinks that having crossed this line, Byron would betray him now if given the opportunity. Yeah, and this is so brilliant. And I think the brilliance of it is that, like, like I think you're a person torn because on the one hand, you have this horrible thing that Tristan does. And if you're like me, the entire time you're reading this chapter, I was imagining, like, what Byron's responses to things would be, um, like, what he would be saying, how he would be reacting to this, how 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 more and more he would be losing his as this went on and on. But at the same time, I get Tristan. Like I I understand him and I don't want to take away from the bad thing that he did, but he crossed a line, but the line's been crossed. Now you can't uncross it. If I do, Byron will punish me. Byron will take over. And he's, he's wrong in that. Um, He's absolutely wrong. In, in, in this read of his brother that now that I've done this, he's definitely going to do it. And he was probably going to do it anyway. But that's the whole thing with them is they don't communicate. They don't see each other. 
and they don't really know each other. So like his whole motivation for undoing it is based off an assumption that's just wrong. And that's very understandable. And also it's not just, it's not just what's Byron going to do. It's, it's the whole nature of any time there's a, there's a terrible lie. And, and like the, the lie in the first place is bad enough but usually could be forgiven. Like if he had just immediately switched back and was like, all right, I, I, sorry. Like I, I got, I got agitated and that that was a mistake. Like people would have been annoyed with him, but it would have been like, you could have smoothed that over. But then like lies compound, you, you continue the lie. You, you have to continue the lie every day to everyone you meet. And then it be, then it crosses over from being something you could maybe just ask for, you know, just, just, just say you're sorry into the domain of, of like your whole life is becoming distorted by this lie. Yeah. And at, at that point it's the lie itself that's self perpetuating. Yeah. I mean, and, and there's, you're right. There is something completely human and understanding about that, right? Like mm-hmm. I've never done anything as bad as Tristan done does, but I've buried myself in lies and just kept digging to try to dig myself out of it. And you like, that's something I did as a kid. Like you, yeah. you, t- you tell a lie and now you have to tell another lie to back up that lie. And it just snowballs. And, you know, it's, I think you, you read this and you see his, his, his justification and his rationalization for doing this. And you're like, you're wrong, but I get why you would feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah <laughs> as we get into it we'll see all these examples so yeah so figurehead dropped it says figurehead dropped to one knee hand clapping down on the metal of tristan's armor the half hug and supporting touch was walled off by thick elaborately decorated metal to the point he could barely feel it um so th- this stuff like this uh you know this whole chapter is this incredibly deep psychological disintegration uh, but it's these first few moments that hit home so hard and, and here you have this moment where he is metaphorically isolated by by his you know by his costume um against yeah. any kind of comfort he can't he can't uh, other people are trying to comfort him but they yeah. they can't comfort him because it's not they're not comforting him for the thing that they're comforting him for yeah and the, the writing here is so cold i mean it, it reflects tristan's shell shock like he's things are happening and they they're just kind of happening around him and he, he's he's seemingly barely there and and I love this because it's going to come around explicitly in the end, but he's just doomed Byron to what is, you know, presumably a lifetime of of isolation and loneliness. But here he's just as alone. Like Tristan is an extrovert. Tristan is a is a, is a person who gathers strength and finds comfort in being surrounded by people. And what he has done with this situation is isolated himself from everyone around him. And there's that, that word. Everyone is like a, a, a drum that beats through the first early part of this. Like we're going to get to it in a little bit. But but it's something he says over and over and over again as he's realizing the magnitude of what he's done. And 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 I love how the the armor being there between him and the other person is symbolizing this isolation. This lie has, has pushed him into. Yeah. Um, it's, it's almost the same as when he goes, you know, when he's, when he's inside, um, and can't control, can't, can't actually touch anything himself because it's just a, a metaphor for the distance. Yeah. This next bit says, uh, coiffure rose to her feet, ginger in her movements and walked over to Moonsong to hug her. That was good. 
Coiffure was good. Naturally kind, heroic, and cool. Moonsong had her shitty side, but he didn't want her to suffer. He especially didn't want her to suffer alone. Nobody deserved that. Byron. <laughs> um, and it's like in this moment, he it hammers home that he made this choice in desperation, somewhat spontaneously, or at least without any, anything like calculating premeditation. And it's only now that the consequences are becoming real. Byron's in there going crazy. Everyone is going to be made aware of this. And Tristan will have to act, keep a lid on this forever for bosses, family, friends. And he thinks everyone was so many people. Yeah, I, did, I love this so much. Like, you're absolutely right. The text leaves no doubt as to whether Tristan had planned this before doing it or not because like this line nobody deserves to suffer alone and then his brain makes the mental leap it's like oh yeah i just did that to someone but but even more than that like he he, like he's just like realizing i can't tell fur kate about this Mm -hmm. i can't tell nate about this i can't tell anyone like every single person is gonna be is gonna know about this and I have to lie to all of them. Something that like never even crossed his mind when he made this decision. And then there's this, this random moment that I love so much when, when after he says everyone, he says something in that word crystallized the horror in Tristan. He shivered involuntarily. Everyone, the team, the staff, students and teachers, other teams. Hell, there was a girl at the pasta bar just down the street from Reach's headquarters who was clenched for buy bringing her A-game for flirting. She'd been visibly devastated when they'd come in with Brianna. Byron hadn't noticed that she'd taken their drinks, but hadn't been around the rest of the night. And it's just this, like, random memory of this random person, this person who is completely inconsequential to Byron. Byron didn't even notice them. Um, But in this moment, Tristan's realizing the thing he did doesn't just affect Byron. It doesn't just affect him. It affects everyone. He's hurting everyone. Yeah. I also thought this was a beautiful example of like Tristan actually paying attention to Byron in ways that Byron at this point in time probably would have not believed. Yeah. Um, Perhaps even paying more attention than Byron. And also just, just repeating that beat we've pointed out before that it's not that Tristan doesn't pay attention. It's that he pays attention to different things than Byron pays attention to. Well, and I love like the, he thinks to himself, if I had told Byron about this girl, um, he would have accused me of sabotaging something or, or mm-hmm. manipulating him or something. And, and I don't think he's wrong. I think Byron would do that. Um, and, and that's just kind of the, the, the vicious cycle of this relationship that, that even if one of them were to an extend an olive branch or, or try to patch things up, the other would just assume it's either weakness if it's, if it's Tristan or, um, it's insincere if it's coming from, if it's Byron thinking it. Mm-hmm. And, and this is a cycle that they will need to break if they're ever going to, um, repair their relationship and hey they do yeah well and we'll we'll see um so even in this place of emotional extremity when Vaughn shows up Tristan still takes the lead because he has to be in control he has to be on top of things he deals with the chaos and the feelings by seizing as much control as possible uh, of course that's how he got into this mess yeah yeah I, I, that is um um, even, even as like he, he digs this hole deeper and deeper, he deeper, he's gotta be the one holding the shovel. And, and like we talked about with 
with Goddess and Amy last week. It's not just about the bad choice, right? Making a bad choice is bad enough. But but if you learn from that choice, if you try to grow from that bad choice, become a better person, that's good. Tristan made this choice to kill Byron. Um, and then he just keeps making the bad choice. He doesn't learn from the badness. Like he he continues to try to have to tackle things head on. Can't let anyone else deal with it. He's making the same bad choices over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, so and, and here he proceeds to make like potentially a worse choice, which I wonder if it's going to have downstream consequences. He, he lies when asked and says that Paris fired the shot uh, that uh, killed Byron uh, with lethal intent. Uh, and it, it's funny because he, the way he frames <laughs> this in his, own mo- in his own monologue is thinking about it rationally. So it's like he's here. He is being cold and calculated and being like, you know what? Fuck Paris. Yeah, I'm, I'm going I'm going to basically try to to sick everyone on him and possibly get him killed um, with this lie. So, yeah. Which is funny because like that's a connection that you and I made before Tristan did. Like when we were looking at evidence for why this could possibly be a premeditated decision, we were like, well, there's a reason he chooses it specifically with Paris, because then he can pin the murder on Paris and get him punished because he doesn't like him. And that's not something that Tristan connected until right now, seemingly like that just shows how rash and unthinking the choice was. That's like, oh, yeah, I can also um use this to screw this guy over Yeah, it's one of those loose ends that uh breeds more loose ends oh yeah huh, i wonder if we're gonna see any more of those mm. what one thing i wanted to point out here um is moonsong's behavior throughout all of this she starts the chapter like immediately calling tristan a liar which she's she's right <laughs> um but then Tristan is able to kind of channel the guilt and the horror at his choice that he's feeling into a, an emotion that looks realistic enough to for Moonsong to at least temporarily buy that this actually happened. Um, but but still, she's angry and she's taking out her anger on Tristan, like when he's explaining what happened with Paris, when he's telling the story, um, he kind of says something that that actually I think. To be fair to her, I think the thing he says seems to push the blame onto Byron. Like, like he wasn't fast enough. He didn't do this. And she's immediately like, don't you blame him? Don't you blame this on him? Um, I just think it's like I just wanted to highlight that because she's this really, really complicated character who um, we keep learning more and more about. And um, like, I think she still like has bigoted tendencies. Right. But like that is an, a facet of who she is. That is not all she is. Yeah, I, I think that's accurate. Um, it's it's kind of heartbreaking to watch, and, and like her her reactions to everything and kind of development throughout this chapter is is steadily tracked. Yeah, but, but of course in the background, um, and not something that Tristan is really focusing on because uh, he's so focused on himself and his own problems. Yeah. Um, well, and I, I think like we know. Moonsong hates Tristan still like we know that it from the present day like they've argued every time they've been around each other they've almost come to blows um, and we also know that whatever Byron and Moonsong had doesn't seem to be a thing anymore now it, it doesn't it doesn't tell us in this chapter but my assumption there is that 
when we get to Byron's forgiveness of Tristan, that was not something Moonsong was able to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, that, that she, that she probably doesn't understand why he could forgive her, like why he could do that. And that was kind of the splinter in their relationship. Yeah. I, I wonder if, you know, it actually makes me wonder if the reason why Byron and Moonsong are not together is because of this event or is it more because gold morning happened and everyone was scattered uh because if it's because of this event then byron is not only forgiving tristan for locking him away for for a couple months but also for (laughs) destroying his relationship with this girl he was in love with basically yeah um, which is kind of its own separate thing on the side that sucks you know yeah i mean it it does suck and I I don't know if if their relationship was just damaged by gold morning, I would assume that Byron would have taken some initiative at some point to like, like reach out to her. And we haven't seen it just because we haven't seen it doesn't mean it's not there. But um, I I would think that would happen. What I kind of like the the poetic part of this, I like and, and we are jumping ahead a little bit, but that's okay. But Byron in his interlude, like kind of chose Moonsong over Tristan. Um, this was a person that clearly had some problems with his brother's orientation. And um, while she was not, while he was not supportive of that, he like liked her enough that he wanted to be with her. Um, if it's true that the reason why they're not together anymore is because of this event, because of this happened, because of Byron's ability to forgive that, that she does not have, it's kind of the opposite. It's him, him choosing his relationship with his brother over over her. And that's that's a change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's yeah. not something it's not something he should be expected to do, but it is something he chose to do. Yeah, I like that. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm going to try that perspective on and, and see if it makes sense to me as we continue this discussion. All right. So the chapter then skips to the present day where Tristan is still doing damage control uh, now Mayor Gene Wynn, uh, a.k.a. Citrine, arrives with the number man. And uh, it, it's revealed a bit later um, in the chapter that Tattletail is apparently, Tattletail and Barcode have apparently dished on these guys. So that's how Breakthrough uh, knows that they're Cauldron members. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm completely fine with the hand wavy. This is how they know that yeah. explanation. I don't need that to be mysterious. Um, but but Mayor Gene Wynn is new, right? Um, I think we knew things were heading in that direction, but I, I hadn't realized that it was official official. Yeah, I believe that's the, the information is being revealed to us here. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, before we move on, I want to talk real quick about this decision to jump into the present here. Right. Um, if I'm being honest, the first time I read this, I didn't like it. I, I really wanted us to stick with Tristan in the past and, and Tristan's guilt and paranoia. And I wanted the book to kind of stick with that and hold on to it kind of to match um, for our perspective, to match Tristan's as he's getting like more paranoid and more guilty and, 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 and more regretful. Um, but on a reread, I liked it. Uh, I, I, 
I think it's an opportunity to make some rather specific points of comparison between Tristan in the present and Tristan in the past. Um, it's to demonstrate how Tristan has changed um, since the moments where he doubled down on his lies and cruelty. There's little bits and, and moments throughout this part of the chapter that reflect very well off the thing that came before it to, to the point where if you had slotted this like at the end of the whole um, 72 day thing, it wouldn't have worked as well. So I. Uh, on a reread, I, I liked it. I liked it a lot better here. Yeah, I mean, it, he says a lot of things that make it clear that he's thought about these issues, these issues right. of, of guilt and forgiveness and and um, responsibility and so forth. Yeah, and and as you say, having 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 this here rather than at the end um, works better structurally within the chapter. And then also speaking structurally. I like that this scene is being portrayed not from Victoria's point of view, so you have to do a, a, an interlude character. And I like that it comes at the end of the arc, so it sort of it sort of has to be here. And that, that's actually a weaker reason than the one you described, <laughs> um, but it's still a reason, I think. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, it, it almost if, if you take this where it is, and then you look at the structure of the chapter as a whole, your your structure is then um, the the immediate reactions to the choice that he made the doubling down the the digging the hole then we cut to present day and we see okay clearly he's gotten past this he's learned from this he's better um and then we cut back to the past and say okay how did that happen so it's like uh, establish uh show the change and then tell the story of how the change happened yeah or or at least the middle one is remind us of the change that happened because we've been seeing a change tristan throughout this entire book so far we just weren't aware of how much of a change it was until we saw who he was before. Yeah. I, th- I think the, that's, that's a great point. That's the, the setting up of expectations, of course, being a crucial part in storytelling. Um, yeah. That's what it's doing. So they're talking with the cauldron members and Tristan uh, description fucks the number man. <laughs> um, and, and I also love that uh, he breaks down Citrine's outfit but um, kind of the way Victoria does, but but not not quite the same way because he has his own different things that he that he frames things like he he, he compares it to rash guards and nice pants and stuff like that just because those are the types of things that that he that, that he would be looking to buy. Um, and I just it's very you know subtle and just kind of minor touches, but um, just good yeah. good character writing. Yeah, well, and he also sees it as a reflection of her influence, right? Because he he notes that um, some of the stuff she has, you can't get through just having money and giving the money to a person. Like the the value of money is fluctuating to the point where the, some of the niceness of some of what she's wearing would require bartering. It would require having contacts and knowing people and and ha- having resources to trade. And so it's kind of him firmly establishing his understanding of just just what level of power influence she has. Yeah. And once again, it's Tristan being observant um, yeah. know, in ways that he might not get credit for normally. Yeah. Um, although we do know that he's good at the PR thing. Yeah. So, yeah. So apparently they're having this conversation um, like a few yards away from Bianca's <laughs> mangled, eviscerated corpse. Um, Breakthrough really needs to do a better job at this whole exposing minors to horrific violence thing. That's eh, fine. It's fine. <laughs> They'll be all right, right? I mean, I I guess they're used to it by now. I would say so, yeah. Um, and it's also funny how I mean, Cap points it out himself, but num- Numberine 
act like villains in this whole interaction and it's just so great yeah it is very extremely villainy and, and i does I, I do think this does a, a few things like first we're like officially concerned about these guys like i was before but like they're acting super villainy maybe we should be worried about them officially having power um but i think having tristan be the point of view character here and having him being the one pointing out that that these people are being kind of villainy and and having citrine acting callous about goddess's death i think we're showing that things she's saying are things that he doesn't agree with like i don't think he really challenges her here because he's like trying to do pr but i think through context we can kind of get this idea that that the the things she talks about the things she talks about with with regret and with um sometimes having to to make decisive physical like violent ends to things um are things that tristan doesn't really agree with anymore and i think that helps cement this is the change tristan mm-hmm. yeah yeah he, he's he's yeah just shows an impressive amount of maturity i think in the course of this um yeah. and, and kind of awareness of subtle things that are happening yeah um, so uh, there, there's the, the of course the touch toward the beginning of the conversation where Number man has gone out of his way to look up Sveta's name for politeness sake um, because it was a it was a sore point uh, last time they met. Um, this doesn't really satisfy her. Uh, and, and, you know, in the course of her speaking, we get a glimpse of how raw she still is. Oh, yeah. I, lo- I love this so much. It wasn't a question of courtesy. Sveta said, I didn't want you to look it up. I wanted you to know it. So, like, it's not that you didn't, like, know what to address me by. It's that you didn't bother to learn who I was before you turned me into this thing. And I, I don't know, like, it, it, to Sveta, that's him clearly stating that he doesn't, he still doesn't get it. He still doesn't get why she's so mad at him. But um, I, I don't know if that's super fair and and that leads us to this whole conversation about remorse yeah um it's also almost certainly not her real name but um well that, yeah that's the other that, thing that's yeah. a separate thing yeah. yeah um yeah so she tells him she doubts that he understands remorse or that he's ever felt it and kind of still being a villain but also i think trying <laughs> to be earnest he says not often remorse is a funny thing the market promises to leave can so easily be drowned out by the need we feel in the moment and then, which which is a thing you can imagine him thinking earnestly. And, yeah. then, and then Victoria responds, I think there's an element of choice in that. Pretending there's no choice and that it's a force of nature sounds dangerously close to a justification. Um, and then he responds, if the strength of our needs justified anything, there wouldn't be any remorse. If we were all capable of accurate self-assessment. If. So like, this is yet again worm.txt. Yeah. I mean, it is, but it the, the thing I love about this is that it serves multiple things. I mean, this is directly relating to Tristan and the choice he just made in the last section and he's going to be dealing with throughout the rest of this chapter. Um, he literally makes this exact argument to himself that we're going to get to in a moment that he didn't have a choice, that he removed the idea of choice, that this was the only option, um, that, that he made this in a moment of need that he felt in the moment. Um, and, but I love, I love the number man's response here, Matt, that if the strength of our needs justifies anything, there wouldn't be any remorse. If we were capable of accurate self-assessment, like this is, I think as close as number man's going to get to like admitting that maybe they made some of the wrong decisions along the way. 
I mean, I, I think this is like a wonderful, one, like the word choice here and, and is beautiful because it, it's completely double edged. I'm going to try to explain right. what I mean. Like on the one hand, you could be saying like you should be um, the, the, the reason Tristan feels remorse, for example, is that he knows deep down that the strength of his needs doesn't justify what he did. Yeah. But, but like the villain twist on it is like, if you still feel remorse, it's just because you haven't accurately like come to grips with the fact that actually you were justified. And if you really embrace <laughs> the fact that you were justified, then you wouldn't feel any more remorse. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It, you're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, like, I think I wanted to read it a little kinder to him, but I, I think it's absolutely fair to say that he's saying if you're feeling remorse, it means that yourself that your the tools of your self-assessment are not accurate because you decided that you needed this and you were wrong because you're feeling remorse. So remorse is just a symptom of improper calculations, in, internal calculations and not any actual kind of like useful emotion yeah i mean i i I also want to extend some like nuance to to kurt um but this is the slaughterhouse nine member who 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 gets (laughs) who who got the line ah morals (laughs) right right i think you're absolutely right and and i I like that i like that a lot more i like i really want to be kind to this guy i want to think that maybe on some level he is feeling some remorse of his own but you could i think the callous read of this is is probably the accurate one Mm -hmm. but i i love i love i mean it fits victoria like this lines up with victoria's exact ideas where where um like the, the the idea of I didn't have a choice is something she refuses to to accept, to acknowledge. She is not a person that deals with justification at all. Like she doesn't like that, um, even though she does it herself sometimes. But I just like this is this is talking about Worm. It's talking about Tristan and Byron. It's talking about Number Man. It's talking about Victoria. It's doing all these things at the same time in just this little conversation. I love the the dual meanings these conversations can have. I think it's what makes this book so continually interesting because things always mean multiple things. Yeah, everything is is refracting and it's always fresh. Um, yeah, yeah. That's, that's kind of the key, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so Tristan asks to trade, break through his help, or any information they have on case 53s and case 70s. The team in the background reacts to this, obviously not having talked it over. Cauldron then one-ups them and offers the entire PRT database. Man, these capes are a bunch of nerds, huh? Mm-hmm. The Cauldron fairies come down and offer them anything they want, and they just take data. <laughs> yeah. I, I like that because this was mentioned in like the first or second chapter of the story that victoria just really wishes her files were complete yeah yeah Uh, so i I like that it's being brought up again and actually being you know resolved well i think it also serves to to draw a defining line between this new cauldron thing um and what old cauldron was because old cauldron was this very secretive organization that was very protective of information they didn't like to give things out in fact they killed people uh, if they if they told too much or if they got too much information out about things, this new one um, seems more open to communication. So we don't really know like what their end goal is yet. We don't really know what they want, but they're different. So, yeah, that's good. Yeah, this is a this is a sign that maybe Beaker isn't going to be like the main antagonist. Oh, um, I'm sorry. That's what we were calling it. I forgot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
uh yeah it, it's good it's it gives you a small spark of hope which i'm sure is not going to be quenched in any way no so the team also offers to let them use kenzie's tech to disrupt teachers portals and teach and kenzie asks uh, in exchange for a pony <laughs> um and and then and then when when Citrine kind of like responds to this, she's like, oh, no, did I do something? Um, and and, and uh, Tristan thinks, again, just slightly off. He didn't consider himself a Kinsey whisperer like Ashley and Victoria seemed to be, but he wanted to talk it over with them. Yeah, this is like a clear setup for some future Kenzie problems, which, I mean, makes me really sad because Kenzie had this wonderful breakthrough moment. But there's no way that Chris choosing to leave did not royally fuck her up. Like as as much progress as Kenzie has made, that is going to sting her. Um, and, and I like that we're seeing this through Tristan's point of view. We're seeing, like you said, once again, he's more observant as a, of a person than people give him credit for. Um, and he notices this like and, and we know that if he notices this, you better believe Ashley and Victoria have noticed as well. And, and I'm interested to see the the, the Kenzie powwow that's going to come. Yeah, yeah. I, I was trying to figure out where her head is at in this scene. And the only thing I could think of is like, maybe she's so excited about having made her breakthrough um, that she is like, I'm I'm better now. So I can just say anything I want. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Which, which sounds like a psychologically realistic thing. But I, I admit that I'm reaching and kind of I, I don't I, I don't wouldn't call myself a Kinsey whisperer either. So, I mean, I think it's I think it's just repeating past um habits of being the happy-go-lucky mm -hmm. kid when you're really suffering on the inside like she it's it, tristan notes that she's being almost too childish even for herself and and that that seems very like on brand for kenzie trying to mask um the the severe terrible sad thing she's feeling right now um yeah i mean i i i want it to be like a, a new wrinkle because that means she hasn't regressed any but like there's no way that this didn't screw her up like chris was a really important person to her and not only is he gone now but it's not like when it, it's different than when ashley left like he chose to leave forever yeah and and they were friends in a way that everyone else is older than her you know that yeah they're not yeah you know you can be friends with people who are older when you're a kid but it's not really the same so, yeah, I, I, I guess I didn't that didn't quite click for me. But, yeah, that, that, that feels right, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Cauldron also says they want Monokeros. Tristan lies and says that she's dead. And uh, Citrine buys it because he's so good at lying about that specific thing. Yeah. So for the second time in the chapter, Tristan lies about someone's death. Yep. Second or third, actually. Well, no, second. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Now, look, Monokeros is a monster. I'm like in totally in total agreement with that. And I think beaker attempting to use monokeros to control her to leash her as they say um is a recipe for a disaster like that's a really bad idea but i won't be surprised if this comes back to bite them in the ass in the future this lie first we're like specifically drawing a connection between the two lies like tristan lies about a death we see later in the chapter that lie blows up in his face and makes him miserable and and ends up just screwing everything up secondly when he lies, he, he uses a very specific wordage here. He says, if she noticed the lie, Tristan was fairly confident she would have had to read another member of the team to see it. She gave no indication. And then he says, one less loose end to deal with. 
And I think calling it a loose end is, is very specific language here, because earlier in the chapter, when they were talking about the death of goddess, Tristan very specifically notes it as a loose end that may have created a hundred more, um, which is something we talked about a bit earlier, I think. But it, it's hard for me to see these connections and draw these connections and then just say, OK, this is going to be fine. Nothing bad's going to happen because of this decision at all. Yeah, this this is what I was kind of like mentally thinking about when I said that I I kind of expect some eventual fallout from his lie about it having been Paris who who murdered Byron because yeah. because as of now there's no consequences to that lie um and it just kind of feels like there could be yeah I think you're probably right yeah okay cool but uh, but I think we're gonna see Monacaris again unfortunately. Yeah, I, I don't know how she's trapped and in a bunker in a empty world. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, stranger things have happened. Yeah, this is uh, I'm, I'm sure something horrible will happen to bring her back to us. I don't know. Hope not, but I'm not <laughs> confident in that hope. Uh, I, I like this bit where he's thinking Victoria handled the talking, focusing uh, focused on a task in a way that helped to, pu- to pull her out of the mire, even as her body language was nervous and defensive. Yeah, I I really like this because I like every time we get to see Victoria from someone else's perspective. Um, there this this full acknowledgement that Tristan can see her when she's in her mire, um, and can see her body language, and 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 I think Victoria thinks that she's looks more composed than she does. I just think that's her general thought is that I am composed. No one notices that on the inside I am losing it. Um, yeah, they they do, they yeah. do. Yeah, yeah, I mean, she she never mentions her body language because um, people tend to be not super aware of it. I'm not gonna yeah. say I'm not gonna say people people are never aware of it because I mean I I think I go in and out of being aware of my body language personally. Yeah. Um. But yeah, especially when you're like in an emotional uh, corner, um, your if if your emotions are are tumultuous enough that you're expressing a lot of them through body language, then that's usually a time you're not going to be aware of your body language. Yeah. So yeah, um, I, I agree. This is a great little, little insight into, and also, you know, says something about Tristan that he, he pays attention to her too. He pays attention yeah. to how she's doing. He's, he's kind of checking in on her the same way she kind of checks in on him actually. Yeah. Well, and he's also kind of um, deferring control to her, um, which I think is, is, another change in old Tristan, um, the guy who needed to be in control of the situation the entire time that took control that even after he just lied about the death of his brother still needed to be in control. of The situation needed, needed to be the one in front here. He, uh, she's, she's handling it and he seems okay with it. And I think that's reinforcing Tristan's changed. He's different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So we move on to day two. Day two. <laughs> wow, we're an hour into this podcast. Yeah, it's just like what I told you earlier. It is. Uh, so Tristan endures his parents' grief. Uh, he asks himself if he can harden his heart, uh, even while his paranoia begins. When he has a moment to himself, he speaks to Byron for the first time and tries to justify himself while staring at a picture of Byron, who is pouting at him from the from the image. <laughs> and, he's, and he's saying, and you... He continued to whisper out of out of a concern for bugs because he wasn't willing to rule anything out, not when the stakes were this high. The self-harm by, the repeated escalating self-harm, starting with the pen. 
I'll assume that was self-harm and not you trying to hurt me. But it was scary, By One of us was going to lose it eventually. Do something stupid. The way you were going, I wasn't sure you were going to last the rest of the year. Yeah, this is some bullshit, Matt. Uh Uh-huh. I had to. I had to. This is that exact force of nature versus choice that Victoria was talking about in, in the last section of the chapter, um, that, that if you remove the idea that you had a choice, then there need not be any remorse for it. And he's desperately trying to get to that place. He's desperately trying to justify the decision he made. This is your fault, Byron. You were destroying yourself. You weren't going to last and you left me no choice. It's, it's, it rings so false and so hollow because I don't think he believes in himself. I don't think he actually believes any of this. He's just trying to convince himself of this as he's telling it to Byron. Yeah. And you can watch the progression of, of what he's going through as we go through these, the, the various days. And in this one, he's at the point where he's like, look, I'm, I'm going to harden my heart. I'm going to tell myself a story mm-hmm. where this was fine. This was all fine. This is your fault. You left me no choice. Um, and it's, it, 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 we see pretty soon that this doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Like it, it, right. it breaks. Yeah. But there is something going on here that I think is really important. Tristan's talking like he, he is revealing a little bit of his insecurities. He's showing that he was scared. I don't think we've ever seen Tristan talk this way to Byron before. And I think this is really important because I can imagine Byron sitting inside of him and like freaking out and responding to all this and yelling at him, but he's, he's still seeing it. He's observing this. And I think that's the most important thing about is everything, every bad reaction, everything that's happening on to Tristan, every, every realization he's making and, and, and suffering that he's doing, Byron is feeling that too. And that is so important for understanding how Byron gets to a place of change, gets to a place of, I forgive you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you have to wonder if he talked to Byron more than this, you know, we don't see anything else. I mean, we didn't, that he does, but no, uh, we did. We, I don't think he's ever been this, um, honest with Byron before, mm-hmm. yeah. um, th- this exposed, like he's, he's, he's lying. He's constructing a narrative to try to make himself feel better, but he's also like showing that he was scared, that he was worried that he was going to lose that he, that, that, um, his life was being destroyed. And, and, and I, it's just, I just don't think he's ever been that vulnerable. Yeah. Audibly before. Yeah. I I think you're right. Yeah. It's, it's, breaking down the wall just a little bit yeah even even in this terrible situation right right yeah but he, he finishes the chapter or this part of the chapter saying if it's down to one of us surviving i've got to side with me and that's the whole thing matt is it's not it's not down to one of you surviving you've created a false choice there yeah exactly and he, he does admit though that he had the idea of what to do when he saw Furcate kill their other selves um but he says he wasn't planning it it was kind of cooking in the background but the actual choice was an impulse yeah and then you know byron of course doesn't respond because he can't and he feels angry at byron's silence and then he tears byron's pictures off the board yeah this is like this is the wonderful irony of this entire chapter that 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 everything that tristan wanted he's gotten and all he wants is 
for it to go back to the way it was. Yeah. Yeah. Immediately regrets it. Yeah. You wanted him gone and now you need him here to make you feel better. Yep. It's terribly, tragically beautiful. Yes. So then we skip to day 24 and Capricorn goes in for his first team sparring match since the incident. Uh, Tristan uses his power and it's, um, well, spikes jagged like pyramid shaped triangles drawn out long, some connected as one triangle after another to form the angular breaks where the lines had drawn curves. Some were connected in chains of three or four, all black with crimson material visible through gaps where one connected to another or what or wetted the spikes to a surface that might be harder to sell to the design team. Coiffure said, um, and then even worse, of course, it is now animate and actively tries to kill anybody near it. Oh, I love this so much. I love this is perfect shard fuckery that it, it ad- adapts to um, the, the horror of the relationship, the horror of what he's done and becomes this monstrous um, terrible thing. Um, it, it's so it's so it that the power is angry. It's violent. It's uncontrolled. It, oh, I love it so much. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't want to break from this thread, but like it, it's really interesting that Tristan's power is particularly strong in, in like the present timeline. Um, not. Uh, yeah, I don't I, I don't want to diverge too much, but it's it, it implied that maybe that means Byron likes him a lot more right now. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. Exactly yeah. Yeah. How, I mean, I, literally to take that. It, it could be. I mean, that's the thing is like Tristan assumes that th- the this power, the change in the power is Byron consciously like fucking with his power to get back at him. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I it's I don't think like there's we get no confirmation that it's that it could be that. But just subconsciously, like that's kind of how shards work. Like his brother is angry and, and furious at him. So it, it manifests in that way. Um, yeah. That very much could be. But it, it's equally likely that it could be his own guilt like like right, the power right. is not manifesting anything about its brother it's manifesting his own mental state and yeah his mental state is usually tied to his brother in, in, in a way that makes it hard to extricate yeah yeah so so yeah after this happens he immediately flees back to his room having a meltdown Furkate follows him and calms him down talking about the woman who raised them so we haven't talked about Furkate very much matt because their power was like always kind of in the background and mysterious to us. Um, we knew it was some kind of weird, like cloning or duplication thing. They don't bifurcate. That is quadfurcate a word. Sure. (laughs) They do that. Um, it, it seems like, I think we get a little more hints here and it's basically spoilers. It's basically the prestige. Like they seem to divide and then have to decide which one of them is most, uh, like the person that they want to be and the rest of them have to die. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, which is its own kind of like private horror like, yes. on its own. So like, it absolutely is. And it's something that we see reflected so many times. And we're going to see it again at the end of this arc with, with Valkyrie, the, this idea of like the, 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 the cosmic horror embodied by the shards via the specific instrument of like callously like copying people storing the patterns of people and then bringing them back like flippantly um anytime Tristan and and uh Byron swap like 
kind of like how a transporter, like a Star Trek transporter, basically kills you and then makes a new yeah, person. Yeah, it's like, is that what's happening with them? Like, every, everything the shards are doing is is like existentially horrifying, and this is just another example of that. Uh, we, we, and we see so much of it in this arc. I think it's intentional. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's it's so like this is so similar to it's. I mean, it's it's definitely not what Tristan did to Byron, but it's like because presumably all the Furcates like decided this together (laughs) like they all agreed it's like okay um only one of us can hang around it's got to be the one that we think is most like i i love that as a symbol for like uh, transitioning as well like this idea that like they say that the one that was more feminine um is the one that's gonna keep around like it's it's this fascinating like exploration of of change um in in wildbo's wonderful cosmic horror (laughs) landscape it's just it's like and it's like this you could write a whole book about this person and their power and it's just like in the background of this story and it ties in like it still fits in the story that's the reason why we're talking about it now because finally we learned about it and we learned about their their power and how it works and but it's just there like it's not it's not in focus it's just it's just more like window dressing for this world yeah but it's still a good example of shard fuckery because yeah because it's the power does not help them steer in the direction they want to change their body at all. It seems it seems to like only offer choices that are never a happy compromise. Um, yeah, and 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 cause backsliding and things like that. Well, and even even if it even if it does, like there's the. I mean, we can get really existential with this, but like the furcate that is like, oh, good, I'm becoming more feminine is the one that has to die right. because they weren't like, like it's just, Oh, it's horrifying. Yeah. Um, yep. So we skip ahead a little bit to day 57. Uh, things are getting hot and heavy with Nate Scott. Uh, this is kind of what everyone was afraid of, but Tristan can't perform, um, due to crippling, horrible guilt. Yeah. His relationship with his family and his friends, his, his power. And now his, his sexy times. It's like almost as if everything, the freedom from Byron that this choice granted him is being systematically taken away from him by his own interior spiraling and guilt. Yeah, well, and and he's aware that Byron is like here for this. Right. And is completely like messed up by it. And 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 like so which makes sense because day day 60 is the next chapter, which is only three days later. And this is like, he's cracked. Like he's, yeah, it, it's, it's over in his own way. He's now trying to take, take it back. Like, I, I think maybe the thing with Nate was the last straw possibly because he's trying to take it back. The whole thing is just such a design giant disaster. Um, but because of that, he feels like he can't just do it. He can't just say, all right, you know, my bad. Swap it back to Brian, to, to, to Byron. Now he needs to lay groundwork to make sure there's no blowback. Um, yeah, this uh, yeah, he's he's made the decision. He's just got to protect himself. At least he feels I need to protect himself because the second I change, he's going to do the same to me. Yeah. So I need I need assurance. Yep. Although he's not being entirely realistic about it because he's kind of going crazy. And it, it no, says yeah. the fingers on his right hand trembled. He seized them with the fingers of his left and the nervousness seemed to multiply. His two clasped hands trembled together. He unclasped them and he smoothed down the lap of his pants before gripping his knees. Uh, um, 
I love it, man. I love yeah. the detail. And this is like a thread that continues throughout this entire therapy conversation. The entire time he's shaking, he's jittery. Like it says hands jittery, heads jittery, legs jittery. Like he's losing it. And you would think like a, a trained therapist would like recognize that and understand the severity of what's going on with this person and try to help them. Y- you would think that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this therapist. <laughs> so you go talk to the therapist. Now, Scott, there have been some hints that there's more going on in this scene beyond what I perceive to be the surface level of this therapist is a manipulative criminal piece of shit who puts the image of reach above the welfare of Byron and Tristan for that matter. Um, but I'm anchored pretty hard on that read. So what do you think? Okay. So I read this part of, I read the whole thing like three times, but I read this section like six times because I was like really trying to drill down into the section and see, I was, I was trying to be as fair to this therapist as possible to see if I could drill down to an interpretation that doesn't make this guy a manipulative, terrible piece of shit. I don't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. The, okay. the most generous I can be to him is that he's just really fucking bad at his job. Like it, it, that he's a person that genuinely thinks that Tristan is just suffering from survivor's guilt. And just genuinely feels that he needs to get over this for his own for his own health. But he does it in the shittiest way possible because he doesn't actually listen to Tristan. He doesn't let Tristan talk. He like commands the entire conversation. Um, He's like it's a therapy session. Therapists are supposed to listen. He's talking the whole time. So most generous shitty therapist. Uh But but to me, just like you, the, the most obvious read is that this guy is a therapist second and a representative of this corporate team first. And he is a guy that wants to make sure that the corporate team does not suffer um, because of uh, the behavior of one of their members. Uh, He's also a person who has probably been told that Tristan is very important to the image of our team. He's a very popular hero. He's very successful. People like him. We want him on this team. We want him to continue and they don't want to deal with this. So make it go away. Yeah, the the way he phrases certain things makes me feel like he suspects that Tristan is not making this up or, or that it's true. Yeah. So the, the, that's the part where I'm like, look, even if you, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I have a hard time extending much charity to, to this fellow. Well, I think like everything he says is kind of laced with threats. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's it's not so overt but like he says i can't imagine anything more tragic than getting your parents hopes up getting your own hopes up bringing controversy to the team and your teammates and potentially letting word get out that it would give paris an escape clause in his court proceedings so like this is what's going to happen if you do this um you're going to destroy your family you're going to bring controversy to the team and paris the guy you hate is going to get out free yeah and yeah, hurt I, more people i can't imagine anything worse than that right i can't imagine not, anything worse not like having someone trapped inside in the, in the darkness <laughs> screaming right now at this right, very moment right right and 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 
And then when he later says, like, if what you said were true, there isn't a binding contract we could devise that would supersede the criminal charges. We can't give you a magic contract that would protect you. You would likely see some form of punishment, including removal from the team. We're going to kick you off the team. The team would no doubt be devastated. You would hurt people on, on the team. And most importantly, we know Byron threatened to go to the media in the past when he was concerned with your behavior. He would do it in the future. So like he, he starts this whole sentence with if this if what we said were true, but then he goes down this path and, and the therapist is basically like, you know that he would do that. You know, he would go to the media and it's just like, like, come on guy. Yeah. Like it's so it, like whether or not he believes it to be true or not, he's threatening both of them. Yeah. Right. Well, and he's also like the other thing that if it were true, Byron is currently in, in, in hell right now like, like right. you're you're right. you're such a psychopath like I, yeah I, I i don't yeah yeah you would get punished and it would look bad for the team also he's locked in the sunken place for months yeah i'm feeling pretty unfair right now so it's gonna maybe someone can explain to me look there's this. a hidden there's a hidden third there's a hidden third okay. option here uh-huh. and it's the one i think with the least textual support Okay. But the hidden third option is that this therapist is here as part of an elaborate multi-month sting operation. Uh-huh. And he was intentionally being dismissive of Tristan's concerns because he was trying to encourage him to confess more. And actually, it's not Moonsong that overheard the things. It's the therapist that goes back to the team. And they've all been playing this forever. And there's nothing in the text to actually <laughs> support this. But... That's the only way I can I can mangle things around to make it so this guy isn't horrible. Yeah, that's possible. <laughs> um, I, I I was a little bit because um, because my, my spin on that was like, well, maybe it's not like part of a con. It's that he feels afraid. He sees how unhinged Tristan looks in this moment. And and he's trying to basically talk Tristan down just to get him out of his office without getting killed or, or whatever. Because yeah, that makes you a shitty therapist. Though. It, it it does. And because here's the other thing is like if he actually believed that Byron was in like physical danger, which which he is, then I'm pretty sure even as a therapist he would be obligated to tell someone. So yes. So it's possible. Like th- that would be the the generous read would be like he he says okay I'm gonna. Um, I'm just going to get this guy out of my office and make it seem like I'm, I'm completely on his side and, and dismissing this problem. And then I'm immediately going to go to the team authorities and tell them what's going on. Um, yeah, again, I don't think that has much textual, textual support, but I don't think it's ruled out either. So sure. That's my attempt to be fair. This guy's an asshole. Yeah. Agree. Um, yeah. So the therapist kind of blows him off all the stuff we said, um, and I, I just like this bit where Tristan's still justifying himself or, or still still explaining why he can't just switch to Byron now. And he says, I can, but I need precautions first. I screwed this up so fucking badly. I got rid of him, but he takes up more of my day, my thoughts and my routines now than when I gave him half of my time. <laughs> oh, yeah. So maybe I had to do it is not true. Like, I, I love this so much. Th- that's what's beautiful about this whole thing byron has been trapped for two months now he's been stuck he's been alone he's been scared his entire life his entire existence is ruled completely by his brother oh did i say byron i I meant i meant tristan Uh (laughs) 
Because that's I mean, that's the it's it's happening to both of them. He he trapped his brother, but he trapped himself. And it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So when he leaves, he finds the door is ajar and only Moonsong is in the area. And uh, he basically goes from suspecting to assuming that she heard everything. Yeah. The full paranoid mode Tristan is like really, really great yeah. um he's like like i have my own computer not my reach computer because they're gonna be looking on that computer i'm gonna use my own computer and i'm gonna do these things and it, it's god it's so unhinged but it's turns out it was right <laughs> yeah yeah that's funny so yeah they they 72 which is a good you know what 12 days later right yeah he heads into a cape situation with the rest of the team um but he feels like he's seen the script for this situation before so he suspects a trap. Yeah, I really like the paranoia here again, like because on one read, you could see this as just completely constructed in Tristan's mind. And honestly, before we get the reveal at the end of this part, that's what I thought. It was like like Tristan has just gone so unhinged, so crazy that um, he's jumping at shadows and everyone's out to get him. And, and he's completely off base here. But it's his paranoia and guilt that leads to his downfall. Um, but that's not the way it goes but I still really think it works really, really well. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I, I love, I love this moment. It was as if he was playing a slow, careful game of chess, moving his pieces while only guessing as to the state of the other side of the board. Were they even playing or playing at a high level? Could he make a decisive move or confuse his opponent? Like he, he is playing chess. They're playing chess with him, but it's so like, it's so complicated and he's so unhinged that he never stood a chance of winning this ever. Right. Yeah. He, it was, it was succinctly put damage control. He was never going to win. He was p- putting off the, the defeat basically. Yeah. 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 So he hides away in the building and calls his backup two mercenaries, uh, his insurance as he describes them, Basilisk and Throttle basilisk who can kill with a look and throttle whose presence introduces enough of a mind control element uh to inject doubt as to whether (laughs) tristan was of sound mind mind control huh Uh uh-huh it's It's, like a theme yeah yep in the end though he orders basilisk not to kill anybody uh, but his mercenaries hesitate at a crucial moment uh, tipping him off and he immediately runs his team then intercepts him and Throttle appears to have the ability to control him and potentially make him shift back to Byron. But at the last minute, Tristan chooses to just go ahead and do that himself. It says Byron's answering scream tore through the throat he and Tristan shared. Tristan's cut through nothing, limited to a dark void. Oh, man, I I love the way this ends. Let's talk about this for a bit. Yeah. Um, first of all, I love the moment where Basilisk asks... Um, if he wants him to kill someone and, and Tristan has this moment of pause where he like imagines um, Byron in his shoes, like going off with Moonsong and making Moonsong children while he's stuck inside there and, and almost says yes, almost says yes. But at the last moment, like decides, no, don't kill anyone. Don't do it. Um, that's it's really important for Byron's growth. Like, I think that's I think that's the moment where he maybe stops digging holes like stops fighting to keep the lie going you know yeah like that's truly the moment where he decides i have to start doing the right thing yeah um i also like it as just like 
I think you said this earlier that it was almost like entrapment, like they were trying to see if he would be willing to kill people. Um, yeah, yeah, it's I wish I could purely say that it's just him saying, like, you know what, I'm not going to make this any worse. Um, but also, I think that he detects the chance that it could be entrapment because he because it feels off to him. Yeah, a little bit. I, I don't know. I, I I really want to give it to him. Yeah, me <laughs> so, too. So I'm gonna. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll just choose to forget about that other interpretation. And I and I really like that he chooses to do it himself at the end there. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. he's caught. Yeah, he's he's possibly moments away from throttle forcing that change, but. Um, I mean, you could you could interpret that as bad, too. You could interpret that as he's selfish in the end. He wants to get credit for being the one to do it. But you could also see it as he made a choice to do this bad thing. And at the very end, he makes a choice to undo the bad thing himself. Like he could have resisted until the very end. He could have held out until they forced him to do it. But he chose not to. Yeah, he he accepts he accepts that it's over. He is, yeah, he, is, he accepts responsibility. He did yeah. this. Yeah. He did it. Everyone knows he did it. He's caught. I accept it. Yeah. And I, the transition to me here is just amazing. So <laughs> it, it cuts from Tristan sc- screaming, but, but not screaming because he has no mouth, um, to present. Tristan was patient. It was Byron's turn. Um, and so we're, we're immediately contrasting within the present. The two brothers are patient with it, with one another. They work together much more smoothly. They switch easily. They count on one another. Yeah, I, I, I love it. The Tristan being patient, they've reached like an equilibrium. There's that moment where they're swapping in and out easily because Byron reaches into his pocket and realizes that the envelope isn't his. Tristan has it. So they swap back. Um, which again raises like, where's the stuff going, Matt? Yeah. <laughs> this, this is the mystery. Where's, where's the things? Yep. What if you put a gerbil in your pocket? Does the gerbil come to the t- pocket dimension with you? Have they tried that? I don't anyway, know. Anyway, that's the first thing um, I would try. <laughs> but yeah, like we, we're, we've, we're, we're going to a firmly established equilibrium and now the book turns to how did how did this happen? How did we get here? We we left with him doing this horrible thing. How are we here now at this moment of equilibrium, at this moment of positive relationship? How did we get there? Yeah. And, we, you know, we don't we don't actually see how they got there, you know, but but we see where they are now. Right. We see. Tristan telling Byron, like, hey, I've been struggling with with all these memories of, of, of what happened and and I want to know, you know, he he said he wants to know why Byron didn't push harder for for harsher punishment. And it says Byron shook their head. You punished yourself enough. I don't want to dwell in that time, so I'm letting it go. I forgive you, little brother. Little, don't be that fucking cliche. By minutes, I thought I'd get your goat. Um, and then a bit later, it's not pseudo forgiveness, Tristan. I have days when I'm angry and days I'm not dealing at all. You know I have nightmares, I freak out, but that doesn't make it pseudo. It's forgiveness, little brother. I might have hated actually going to church, but that doesn't mean I hated the lessons. Oh my god. So you said you said the, the, the book doesn't show us how they got there, but this is how. This yeah. I, I, I think this is it. The, Byron's forgiveness in this moment is how their relationship is repaired. And 
I mean, the thing that I love about this is I think it's growth for both of them. Mm -hmm. I think Byron as a character, the guy who got so mad at his brother, he strangled him until he triggered. I don't think that Byron is able to forgive Tristan for what he did. I don't think that Byron has it in him to forgive his brother for what he did. But this experience, what happened, his growth as a character, he he was witness to the things that happened to Byron to, or to Tristan, to the way he felt, the way this was destroying him. He saw a side of his brother that he had never seen before. And I think he understands him a little bit more. And that's why he's able to forgive him. You punished yourself enough. I don't want to. Yeah. I, I feel like he saw enough to know that Tristan's not actually the psychopath that he kind of thought he was, you know? Yeah. And, and on the other side of that coin, this is why I love this so much because on the other side of that coin, the Tristan from earlier would see Byron's forgiveness as weakness would see Byron's willing to capitulate and not punish and not go forward and, and, and lay back as a weakness. And I think now in this moment, he is realizing that there's a strength to being that type of person, that there's a strength to Byron's to who Byron is and the type of person he is. And I don't think he sees it as as a weakness that his brother has anymore. And I just love that so much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also, you know, love this idea that like even two years later, he still hasn't forgiven himself. Right. Tristan, Tristan yeah. hasn't. And I mean, I don't love it in the sense that like, Oh good. I'm, it, it's more like, yeah, that's, it's, it shows that he, it shows that he's not just, this guy who who we can just like comfortably hate it's like he's he, he didn't just he, he didn't get out of it scot-free right like he's still upset about he still has a hard time about it feels guilty feels like he deserves yeah. worse and it's just byron's like grace that yeah that he that he's receiving well and they're still not better like mm -hmm. like they've they've been suffering throughout this book. We, they've both gone to Victoria at different times showing how, how much of a hard time they're having. Like th this, this equilibrium they've established does not solve their problems, but I think at least they have gotten to a point where they understand each other. And, and we end this trilogy, this, this Byron Tristan trilogy with the true brothers doing something they have never done throughout any of these interludes they're just having a conversation and they're just talking to each other and, and they're talking to each other like brothers They're they're, they're being kind in places. They're asking questions. They're doing little ribbing. Um, I, I love, I love the little brother thing that like is a joke, but like no one actually gets pissed off. It's just like, uh, don't be that cliche. And I thought it'd get your goat. Like it's just, I just, it's such a change from who they were. And, and and I love that we saw how they got there. And, and I guess what we're saying is by choosing to do this thing, Tristan did the right thing. Yeah. That's a joke. No, he did. but I mean, I think it sometimes, um, horrible things happen that, that open your eyes to, to certain things about yourself and about others. Yeah. Well, the only way out is through Scott. No, no, no bad. I'm just trying to be fair to Tristan, Scott. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the chapter ends with Tristan mentioning to Barcode that he might have some business for them 
but he has to ask his over with his brother. Yeah. Yeah. He has to ask his brother first. Uh, so great. Um, any speculation on what business they're talking about? I I thought about it for a while. Uh, I don't really have any ideas. I don't either. Um, okay. All right. Moving on. (laughs) Cool. Interlude nine. All right. We have half an hour. Go. We have half an hour. We'll do it. So our mystery POV observes an otherworldly, incredibly tall tinker tower. The tower screams with the noise of air and heat rushing through it and glows blue at its top. Uh, I love, love, love the description of the tower. We've this interlude has moved us from, you know, street level, like interpersonal kind of conflict and fighting to to who will eventually realize in a few minutes is Valkyrie and her world saving stakes that she has. And to cement this change, we get this description of a tower, this, and it's this massive haunting, powerful thing. It, it, like this, this one description sets the tone for the entire chapter. And I copy pasted it all into the script and I'm not going to read it, but um, go, go read the intro to this chapter again, everyone. And just appreciate the deliciousness of the description of this thing. Yeah. It's so it's, good. It's beautiful prose and immediately, immediately sets you up to realize this is not a normal point of view character. This, exactly. This, this person sees things differently. Yep. Yep. Um, so the Cape who of course turns out to be Valkyrie um, is she, she's got, we, we find this out, um, you know, implicitly because she's, she's thinking about how her God was dead. That's our first clue. And of course she's wearing this, helmet with wings um she summons a spirit and the ghost glines uh, observes the tower for a time and then gives his report speaking quite normally although still appearing somewhat insubstantial which is a change right i mean i i think we had hints that her shadows like whispered to her but i don't think we saw them like just speak normally especially to other people standing by where the poor wounded man is like what who you what yeah i'm pretty sure what we learned about them in Worm, it's different now. Either her power is different, which we, we've seen that that can happen, actually, or she's just choosing to let them out more. Um, yeah, yeah. Who knows? Who knows I mean, of those? I think regardless, like, her power has changed one way or the other, and and that fits, like, the changing identity that Valkyrie is is having. That's, that's a big, a big recurring beat through the story is Valkyrie and her identity and how, how it's changing based mm-hmm. off of choices she's making. Yeah, there, there's this bit where she's she's philosophical about the idea of of masks and, and identity, which she always was. Um, and she, even thinking about Vicare, the first cape who who had worn a costume very similar to her own, um, and and thinks you know she 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 puts the helmet back on because she's like there there are important reasons to wear helmets and and masks specifically. And when she puts it back on, she thinks of it as being anchor heavy. Oh man, I love that a lot. Yeah. The the thing that I love about this is this, like you said, this is nothing new. Like not only has Valkyrie talked about this before, but a lot of Worm talked about masks and, and costumes as identities and, and those identities you assume and how you, you hold yourself out to the world. This isn't new, but we're refreshing our memory of this fact because Valkyrie has assumed this new identity and she's describing this identity as one of her anchors. That's the things that she told Taylor to hold on to, even though she was losing anything. Anchors is, is the idea of anchors are an important thing to Valkyrie. And, and we see here this identity, this new persona that she's assumed is one of her anchors. And it's, and it's, it's that costume that's anchoring herself to that identity. I love it so much. 
Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in this chapter that's going to gesture at this concept that she's really um, invested in, in this identity of being of being Valkyrie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Glines eventually answers and says, hey, the tower is a giant gun barrel. Uh, they discuss whether it could be aimed at something approaching from the sky. Uh, and Valkyrie reminds us um, that there shouldn't be any other entities approaching because of the scent trail left by Eden and Sion. And then Glines says, no, the point of the gun isn't to shoot anything. It's to just deplete a whole Earth's atmosphere at a shot, killing a planet and then moving on to the next Earth. Yeah, and then another planet and then another planet, the portal holes being a nice little little funneling device to funnel the atmosphere. Yep. Yeah. Um, yep, pretty, uh, pretty cool. Yeah, and I like this because the description of the tower and now the threat of the tower has set the stage for the stakes that we're dealing with here. I mean, that's that's one of the big things is is Valkyrie is dealing with world ending things constantly because when you have world ending power, you are the one chosen to fight world ending threats. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to see that repeatedly throughout this interlude as that's all she does all day. So what do you think about this whole you don't have to worry about more entities coming because of the scent thing? Is that is this the truth? Are we are we good? Well, you know how I am, Scott. Every time the text tries to draw me away from being suspicious of something, that just makes me more suspicious of it, um, which is probably not the intended reaction here. Um, in, in, in fact, I feel like the reason this is being put here is is to allay that concern like immediately. Be like, no, no, this is not an entity killing gun. This is completely unrelated to that. Yeah, um, well, and I mean, it could be the book specifically saying we're done. We're not going to do that yeah. again. Yeah. So we're not don't. Gonna do, yeah. Yeah. The, don't worry about that. That specific thing doesn't really have a lot to do with our themes anyway. But yeah. Uh, yeah. So she returns to a tent full of capes that were all sent to assess this threat. Many of whom I think were wounded. Um, and the cape who's accompanying her, who she's nicknamed the wounded man, uh, tells her how low morale is. And she responds like, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to handle this situation with my team. Yeah, and, and so much of this chapter is just like a day in the life of Valkyrie, right? It's, it's more than one day, but you get my meaning. Yeah. Um, and this is these, these are the kind of things she's having to deal with constantly. World-ending threats, low morale, people on the verge of giving up. And in every situation, she has to say this line. She has to say, if I can't resolve this, there won't be anything your coalition can do. She is in every single one of these situations, basically the last line. And and she's she's like she's a person that's working towards redemption, working towards the same kind of recovery that everyone else is. But but for her, the stakes of that are like crazy, crazy high. If she screws up, the world could end. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's interesting. It's, it's just kind of occurred to me sitting here that like one of the reasons why this identity kind of works for her is that. Sh- or the the purpose of her shard is to collect the other shards at the end of the cycle. Yeah. Um, which is kind of what she's doing, but she's doing it in a way that's acceptable to her, right? It, she's not being dominated by the shard. She's mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know. I just kind of like that. Yeah. I mean, she's literally become a Valkyrie, which we'll yeah. get, we'll get to a bit later. Yeah. Yeah. So once inside the tent, we see that her team uh, is literally her, just her and her power, plus the spirits given flesh that she's been reanimating, which we've had some hints about, but now we're finally seeing that it's 
is real. She's been doing it's real. it. There's a lot of them. There's this one. <laughs> there's this one, a handsome black man with a mark on his face akin to Vitiligo, uh, but not quite the albino, alb- albino white that came from Vitiligo. Um, a loose representation of a skull drawn on his face in lighter brown. <gasps> Does that sound familiar? It's crew. It's, it's our Brian. He's or, back. Or is it? I mean, that, that was something. This is something we talked about today was like, is it Brian? Is it is it a Brian-like entity? <laughs> is, yeah. And we don't know yet, and I'm fascinated to find out a little bit more about the nature of these creatures. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I don't think is just going to be, you know, dropped and then we move on. Like, th- this is something we're going to have to explore because, I mean, Valkyrie is like a second chance machine. Like, she literally creates second chances. Um, and... We're going to have to explore what that looks like. Who are these people? Are they the same people? Are they changed inherently? And how does that change reflect them? Like, there's so much here. Um, and it's he's he's alive. Yeah. I was I was wrong. <laughs> I was wrong. Yeah. Got to go scratch that one off. Right. <laughs> so we see the reanimated people are imperfect. They're like a cross between the ghost image that Valkyrie's power projects and their true form. Some of them have mask-like faces. Some have physiologic issues reminiscent of what Case 53s have to put up with. Valkyrie clearly wants to take care of these people, even though they're not hers. Yeah, um, this this is so complicated. <laughs> like, yeah. she, so she's creating new life forms from dead ones, and, and she's basically choosing who gets it and who doesn't. I don't think we ever like learn the specifics of how she's figured this out. Right. Like I think there's, is there, is there assumption that it's that she's that no bog is building bodies for her. And like, she had to stop because he disappeared. I, I, like that's not never explicit. Yeah. I, I think that's what we're assuming or, or maybe a combination of Nilbog, bog, bone saw and panacea all, and, and her kind of coming together to, yeah. to maybe like, Nilbog makes a body, the other, the, the medical tinkers maybe like make it fit the person a little bit better. And then she puts the soul into them because the, the hint from all this was at the end of Worm. She kind of experiments with putting one of her spirits into one of the, the homunculi and it right. like almost works. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. But so, so we know that these people don't quite come back the same, but, but they're still loyal to her. That's the interesting thing is like they hang around with her. They owe her. So they work for her and she's loyal to them. Like she's kind of like their their mommies. She's worried about them. She wants them to be okay. It's part of her her idea of redemption. It's part of her. She wants to she's gotten a second chance and she wants to grant that to these people, some of which she's done terrible things to. Yeah. Yeah. I I just feel like th- this this aligns with our theme so much that like this is not a one and done. This is going to be a big part of the story going forward. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot being introduced here where. I was tempted to think like, is this just flavor? Like, are we just learning about cool things and seeing cool powers things? Um, and I'm tempted. I'm, I'm suspecting the answer is going to be no in most <laughs> cases. Yeah, we're going to see it again. It's going to be relevant. I think there are parts of that for sure, but this specifically, no. It, it's it's too it's too much in the ballpark of of everything we're talking about and dealing with in the story to just to just be, uh, just flavor. Yeah. So, yeah, she asks if the reanimated folks are doing okay, and then she summons a power to fabricate a deck of cards, a deck of playing cards for them, which is, it just strikes me as a note of, of like, she doesn't have to do this, right? She's, she just sees they don't have cards, wants them to have cards, yeah, them some cards. Um, and uh, I like this bit where one of the, one of the capes says, thank you for the cards, Valkyrie. 
And can you tell what's his name? Thank you for not giving the uh, for not going the cliche route and making me a hearts card. He heard, Valkyrie said. She glanced at the three she had picked out, then started toward the door. They fell and sat behind her. So I just like that because it's an example of someone talking past someone's face to the person inside them, which is what connects it to the Byron Capricorn Tristan situation for me. Yep, 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 yep. Love it, love it. Cool. So Valkyrie summons... Here's here's all the action part now. <laughs> Valkyrie summons four shades in addition to the three reanimated capes, and then they attack. They blast their way into the tower, and they ascend through the inside. Uh, they have a mix of offensive and de- defensive and buff pa- powers that allow them to go up the 431-odd flights of stairs inside the tower. And it's not easy. The, the, the drones get thicker the higher they go, almost overwhelming them. And they, she has to swap out capes to, to pick better powers for the situations. Uh, and, and her capes become tired. She has to swap them out. Uh, and then near the top of the tower, they become even tougher. And she has to wade into the melee with her sword and her wings, which are living wings, which is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I love this fight. Um, it's it's so like again like we're establishing that like the the threats that valkyrie has to deal with are f- so far above and beyond anything that any of our other characters have dealt with in this story so far um to kind of illustrate how the stakes have changed how we've 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 elevated things um i just i like that we established this beat of valkyrie like not being afraid like and and i think it's fitting with our question from last week but She's never really afraid of anything. And I think we're doing we're setting that up very specifically for the the end beat of this chapter. But um, she's just like it, it's even as it gets tough, even as she gets nervous, like it's it's almost casual, like like she was never not going to win. Like, she like, yeah, it's it was, it was just inevitable. She just has to go through the motions. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. It's it's written awesomely in that you don't feel like it's just super easy for her. She's she's having to work at it, but neither is she terribly afraid, exactly like you said. Yeah. So at the top of the tower, they find the tower maker, a tinker, some high number, um, a man <laughs> whose body has been infested with technology, taken over by his own power, the biological human part kept alive only to serve the shard. As they're watching, he vomits up a white-hot pool of liquid metal, um, Valkyrie sees this and she, she pities him. She feels genuine emotion for him. Um, and she, she also identifies his as an Eden shard. And then she has Cleo, the cape with the poisonous tears, execute him. And then Valkyrie takes his shade. Um, and now that she belongs to him, or sorry, he belongs to her, he's obedient and he explains to the other shades how to disable the tower. Yeah, so, I mean, so this is crazy and disturbing and we're seeing kind of another example of um you know how things aren't going things aren't working well with the shard right like Mm -hmm. that's things are things are going going weirds with the shards and this is the kind of stuff she's responsible for this is what she has to do she like she is the valkyrie she is the the collector of souls and she is the, the, the judger of the dead and, and she decides who lives and who dies. And, and, and this is what she has to do. And it's going to continue to be what she has to do. Like each and every one of these events is her doling out death to people that, that have, it has been decided are deserving of it. And it's, it's just like a, 
it's the existence like it's her anchor it's it's what she clings on to it's what she wants it's what she needs to feel like she's earned the second chance but it's just a it's a sad like lonely existence yeah it's it's really complicated i mean there's a perspective i'm not going to dwell on this too much but there's a perspective where what valkyrie's doing is like the same thing that elastic winye was doing um except now she's got a government mandate just harvesting shards right yeah except and, now and, it's now it's cool because they're bad guys and i think we can get to that um with crystal because crystal yeah. like is representative of that viewpoint i think yeah so we we actually after they defeat the tower uh we skip to the next threat valkyries visiting kind of like a regressed world with a small poor population and sh- she detects a feel of slowed time with her with her collection of powers and apparently this is just one of the many horrible things that's been happening to the town. Uh, one of the people, uh, the kind of the matriarch, asks what's going on, and she relates the issues as best as she can. She even explains that her bodyguards were brought back from the dead, which doesn't seem to bother the old woman. <laughs> this this lady has seen some shit, Matt. When, yep. when these are my reanimated dead superhumans doesn't even cause you to raise an eyebrow, <laughs> yeah. you've, you've seen some shit. Yeah, and if this world diverged 100 years ago, then they would might even know what a Valkyrie is. So True. It's just like a True. literal Valkyrie. Yeah. Great. Uh, the, the thing I like is that the old lady describes those reborn capes as uncanny, right? Um, she She's seen the wardens before. She's seen capes before. But these capes don't look the same. So, again, we're, like, reestablishing the fact that these people she's bringing back to life aren't quite the same. They're, they're close, mm-hmm. but there's just something off about all of them yeah yeah i I agree i think that is going to be important so she does find the source of the power a large dog hiding under a porch and she she says things aren't as they should be power fit for beings of myth are falling here and there like litter sometimes it dissipates other times it swells and other times it finds its root the old woman asked um so then she sits in the mud I like that detail that she actually sits in the mud yeah. um, by the dog and she comforts it. She lulls it to sleep before she puts it down with her own hands. Our day in the life of Valkyrie continues. Mm-hmm. And this time she doesn't have to fight her way up a 400 foot tower to, to uh, take the life of a guy who's been taken over by a shard. She just has to kill a dog. <laughs> yep. Great. Uh, I, we're painting a picture here though, Matt. Yeah. Like again, this is a person who constantly, is is expected to do these terrible things to go out and and make these choices and 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 take life and it's just it's just sad it just it just makes me really sad yeah and and she she seems to handle it right but yeah but she doesn't she doesn't like it like she feels genuine pity for the tinker she feels genuine pity for the dog yeah it it, it hurts her um, and then she does she, in both cases, she puts she puts the man, she puts the dog out of their misery, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she can convince herself that she's done a good thing, but also it probably doesn't feel good, to, even though she rationally, you know, knows it's true. It's, it's kind of along the lines of what Kurt said about about, uh, you know, not feeling remorse just because, you know, that you have the, 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 the justification for it. It's like, yeah, sometimes you still feel remorse, even if you have the justification yeah 
So she calls Chevalier, and we see how they're actually pretty buddy-buddy now. <laughs> um, she, she says, I think you have the traits of the best of little boys and the greatest of men, Chevalier, with courage to spare besides. I can imagine the thought crossing your mind. Um, I just That's so heartwarming. Chevalier is best boy. Yes. I like him so much. It like yes. it is interesting to see this transformation kind of transform. It, it, we think back in Worm, the big problem was nobody is going to accept her. Everyone's going to be afraid of her. Um, they're they're constantly going to be ready for her to betray them. And she's apparently proven herself since then. And and there's real camarader camaraderie here. Yeah, and Chevalier was the one who interrupted her therapy appointment and was like, "We need to know what to do with her. Yeah, going to have to kill her. Yeah." Um, <laughs> So, yeah. So he encourages her to take a break. He he lists all the huge threats that she's been dealing with. And uh, we get her first notes of her anxiety about the city. Oh, yeah. And the, the Seamurg's back, by the way. Just, yeah. just, just Let's just throw that out there. There's just back. Just, yeah. No just, bad news is going to happen with yeah, that at be all. Worried. Yeah. I mean, I really like that we've planted this city anxiety flag here in the chapter. Like, again, you know, fear is not something Valkyrie experiences very much. Um, she doesn't experience it when she's fighting in in the the war we're about to see she didn't experience it climbing to the top of that giant tower um it's just not something she normally fears and yet something about the city is making her uncomfortable yeah we don't know what yet though so but she she pushes back against his instruction that she take a break she says too many of these incidents are ones only i have the ability to handle so he sends her to the battlefront to fight tyrant warlords on Bet. And we skip to that fight where Valkyrie and her flock are basically just massacring isolated squads of human and parahuman soldiers. Yeah. Um, she recognizes that this is one of the groups that has figured out how to create trigger events. That's that's great. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And she's I mean, she's being the Valkyrie here, right? Like the Valkyrie literally means chooser of the slain so she that's what she's doing that's what she's doing in every one of these things that she's doing here she's she's doling out death and she's deciding who gets to stay dead and and who gets to come with her and it's interesting that she collects some powers but not all power she lets some die she doesn't collect all of them and she's the one making those choices no one's telling her to do that or not yeah yeah it's it's i agree it's interesting yeah so one survives and tries to escape she rips his power out and he dies uh, and he refuses to answer questions even though he's a ghost. So she kind of makes sure that he sees his dead body before they move on. Yeah, that's an interesting part, too. Like, I, I always kind of assumed that she commanded the shadows. Right. Um, but it seems like they have their own agency and can decide to do things or not to do things. Yeah. I mean, I, I almost wonder if there's very little evidence for this, but if she's like, this have she's decided to allow them to have agency that could be yeah rather than just continually dominating them yeah I, I suspect she could just dominate like i suspect she could use his power if she wanted to you know i don't know we'll see yeah i see what you're saying because i think you're true because she's collected souls of people that hated her a whole bunch yeah. <laughs> so so like if if she i think I think I like that she's like, this is kind of her compromise, that she's taking their souls, but she's not going to command them in ways that she used to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, I, I, I really like 
so so she chose this guy and she says this is what you have wrought she thought but we will return to gimel that land of second chances and you may given time have yours as i had mine i love gimel as that land of second chances um that and it's it happens to be the land that she's so afraid of right it's the, the city that she's so afraid of is in that land of second chances and i, I don't like i don't know I guess we'll get to it when we, we we're about to get to crystal. So we'll, we'll deal with this there, but I'm, yeah. I'm torn about this. Yeah. So she returns to the warden's base and a random faceless PRTCJ Cape challenges her a bit on it. The whole thing about how it's creepy to rip out a guy's soul for questioning like <laughs> Shang Tsung. Yeah. It's just a random faceless. Nobody have a, Oh, it's crystal, Matt. Y- yay. She's alive. Hooray. Yep. Um, I was really actually worried that she was dead and Victoria was going to be so sad. But yeah, I know. No, I, it was really just cool been to on see bet her. fighting wars. Just kind of randomly pop in. Also, just kind of funny that it's Crystal and she just like talks in such like a normal way. Yeah. Juxtap- juxtaposing her with Valkyrie and her like not high fairy anymore, but still like rather unusual way of speaking. Yeah, she. it's very formal Re- yeah regal mm-hmm. m- mythic like it's yeah, it's, it's yeah. yeah perfect yeah so valkyrie almost moves on from this but then returns to chat with crystal when she feels judged interestingly crystal is fine with valkyrie rep- uh, resurrecting friendly capes but very uncomfortable with using her power to capture the souls of her enemies and valkyrie says you know i've had this conversation a lot lately and like it's kind of how it has to be and and crystal responds more or less like i don't believe in the ends justifying the means i think once you start thinking that way you stop looking for those hard to spot answers but then she kind of says like but you know i don't know my mine mine is a simple power that doesn't come with um moral dilemmas so yeah i man i really love this conversation because i i think this asks more questions than it answers and i think it's designed to do that like I personally think Crystal is probably mostly right. And I think these books generally support her point of view, but it's still like armchair moralizing, right? Like just kind of like what we're doing. Like there's a difference. (laughs) There's a difference between sitting here talking about this theoretically and being the person out in the field who is expected to make those tough choices. Like who, who literally is granted the power to and told to decide who lives and who dies, who gets a second chance and who doesn't. That that is the expectation of her. So like, yeah, I don't feel great about her ripping souls out of people's bodies and and forcing them to work for her, um, whether it's good guys or bad guys. But I, I just I, I don't know what the right answer here is. And I, I, don't, I don't think the book wants you to conclude on it. Yeah, I, I'm tempted to be a little bit more um, charitable to Valkyrie here because like it. it the choice in that particular case was like, okay, you're fighting a war. You you really can't let the guy get away. So either you just kill him with like a powerful blaster shot of some kind, or you kill him in such a way that you can then interrogate his ghost. And then maybe someday, like if he seems like he's not that horrible of a person, you can actually resurrect his ghost, give him a second chance. And that's much better than just killing him outright, you know? So yeah, it's it's like I'm 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 seeming much more blasé about this than I actually was at the time of reading because it's certainly cosmic horror, right? To 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 be like, yeah, I'm just gonna rip his soul out. 
That's, yeah, I mean, I guess that I guess that depends on what it is like being in um, Valkyrie's soul collection yeah. chamber, whatever it is. Like, is it is it existential horror to the um, to like the Byron being trapped in Tristan level? Like, I mean, that's why I love that all this is kind of swirling around each other. Yeah, because yeah. like if if it is, then nobody deserves that. Nobody. Yeah. No, you sh- you shouldn't do that to anybody, whether or not you can one day maybe give them a second chance in a new body that's kind of a human body, but kind of a little different. Like that is horrifying. Interesting. So you think it's better to just kill someone outright than to put them in a uh, fate worse than death scenario <laughs> until perhaps a chance of giving them life again? I think because I don't know if that's clear cut. I think that largely depends on what you're religious beliefs are <laughs> about yeah. an afterlife um, and also possibly the nature of the fate worse than death scenario yeah i mean there's a lot of unknowns here but yeah. I, I mean i just th- like crystal represents um an argument against it and the thing that i love about valkyrie is is she's not like i don't think she's justifying in the way that Tristan was justifying what he did to Byron. I don't think she's like, no, you don't understand. I have to. I think she's just like, look, these are the choices. And I understand what you're saying. And you might actually be right. I mean, that's what she says in the conversation. You might be mostly right, but I don't know what else to do. And maybe I'll, I'll, I'll I'll take your stuff under advisement and think about this more in the future. But what she really says is maybe I'll be like light on the torture of him when I get when I torture his soul to get information. Um, uh-huh. But I mean, it is so like she is a person who's 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 very nature, who's very power demands these kind of moral choices constantly. And I like with Taylor, like like when people turned to a person to make someone make the tough choices because they didn't want to. That's the kind of thing that Valkyrie has to deal with. And and while I think Crystal makes a good point, I think she also makes a good point that um, I'm the one with the easy, awesome power and you have the power with the built in moral dilemmas. Yeah, right. Yeah, I love that whole interaction. Yeah, but I, I love the way it ends, too. This little small, tiny beat, Matt, that the probably no one else really paid attention to but i really loved where valkyrie says can i ask before we part ways a fiddly question sure crystal responded drawing out the sound in a hesitant way why crystal your power doesn't match as far as i can see i i could be a flying shoot crystal's girl for all you know crystal said almost defiant now but you aren't if it's an issue i can leave you alone no it's not an issue it's just weird you know Crystal's my name, Valkyrie, my birth name. It's not a secret. Of course, of course. I feel stupid now. I, I love this because, like, we've been talking about Valkyrie and, and, and identity and this identity as an anchor and this idea of um, your costume and your mask being the identity you present. And Valkyrie almost sees Crystal and she can't process her because, like, this is not a person who has named and costumed them, themselves around their cape identity in a way that um that valkyrie has like the idea of her having a public name be known like let's valkyrie has a name and the name is not said at all in this chapter until a very specific point that we'll get to shortly um but i think it's just it's such a little tiny beat that shows how she views things and and the idea of someone just being crystal as a cape i'm just that's my just my name is something she can't process 
Yeah, yeah, she's so in the cape life. It's like I, I don't know if she even ever uses anybody's real name, like ever. Yeah, yeah. Um, like I don't know if she ever has like a life where she's just Kira and takes off her mask. Mm-mm. Um, yeah. So, uh, Legend shows up to their conversation. Uh, Crystal scurries off, and Legend tells her that "Yay, we're done. We won the war. No more monsters or armies to defeat." So you kind of have to take your vacation now. Sweet. So she takes her vacation, which is a week of arduous searching through the multiverse. <laughs> um, and I just love this writing so much. This like epic quest yeah. of uh, um, pouring through the multiverse. And eventually she finds survivors of the portal attack <gasps> and she finds the warden's HQ. She finds Riley and Rink. And uh, as she chats with them she resists the siren call of their sing-song interaction luring her back into magical thinking and we, <laughs> we learned that apparently bonesaw and nilbog have not have like enjoyed they have enjoyed their freedom and they've not used it as an excuse to become complete monsters again um that's pretty fucking cool and i love how this meshes with the themes of the story and, and recovery and second chances and all this yeah they they uh, well i mean <laughs> No bugs, not creating um, monsters. Yeah, yeah. He's he's they're mindless, so it's yeah. fine. Yeah, but I mean, I think you're right that that they have changed on some level. Like, the, the, I remember when we first heard that um, some of the worst people went with them, including. Nilbog, I was like, oh, God, is he going to break out and, and make his own kingdom and, and wreck shit again? And no, he has not done that. Um, he's he's tinkering around with with uh, Riley. They're doing stuff. But yeah, they're not being overtly evil. Yeah, he he has thoughts on what it is to be a king and what it is to not be a king. And like he's become very philosophical about all this. And yeah, he's he's changed. And I think it's it's awesome. Yeah. Um, And then, of course, last thing that happens is she finds jessica yeah and the minute she finds jessica everything changes like jessica calls her by her name and she shifts like the whole thing shifts and she starts like the 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 text starts um she's not valkyrie anymore um the way she talks and of course this final line yeah the city we've talked about it why I'm staying comfortably away, Kira said. The biggest threat, Jessica said. The biggest threat. Yeah, I'm terrified, Jessica. And so that's the beat of Valkyrie never being afraid of anything, um, never just being confident and casual. Here, Kira is terrified, not just afraid, but terrified. And I love that so much. I, I love like she kind of even shifts from her formal dialect here right mm-hmm. like she says yeah i don't think i've seen valkyrie say yeah yeah and she calls her her first name obviously um yeah, she, um, yeah it, it's uh so the thing i'm interested with well there's a lot interesting going on obviously <laughs> but but different people seem to be completely certain in their completely different interpretations of what of what Valkyrie means here of what she's scared of. Um, cause I, cause I have no idea <laughs> or I don't have no idea, but like, I, I don't feel very certain about what she means when she says she's terrified of the city. Really? I did. I didn't, I didn't know people were confident 
I thought yeah, it was so fairly ambiguous. I, I, think a, I think some people have, have ideas and they're just like, oh, it's, it's this. It's obviously this. I'm just like, I don't, maybe, maybe. What are these ideas? Um, you, you're more in tuned with the, 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 at the time of chapter release discussions. Well, than well I the, 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 the main one I think was just like, oh, she, she's scared of people. She's, she's scared of humans. She sees humans and, and humanity as the threat, the greatest, the, the biggest threat. Um, and, and maybe they're, they're the, the specifically humanity's fear of parahumans. And I'm like, yeah, that maybe, but why would she be terrified? You know, like, like, yeah, like it, it I'm not saying that's not it either. I'm, I'm just like, I don't know if, I don't know if I like any answer that I've seen, um, a hundred percent yet. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Uh, like I could, I could make argue multiple arguments for different things I think it is, but I, I don't know. I, I like this as an open ended question that I'm not going to try too hard to solve. Um, that's what I like about our new format is that I don't have to be constantly speculating. So some things I'm just like, I'm going to just be OK with this as a mystery. Uh, what what I do appreciate is that the the text drew us to this moment that that the word terrified means a lot in any context. The word terrified means so much more in the context of Valkyrie saying it like this is very something we are clearly set up and the moment lands very well because we've we've taken the time to establish that fear is not something she deals with normally. Um, I think it's it's very good in that. And I'm anxious to see what she's talking about. The, the weird thing about this chapter is like we go through. And each and everything she deals with is a different form of kind of power stuff run amok, right? We have a tinker power that's kind of like the, the shard has almost seized control of the man. Um, we have a shard going in a dog, which that shouldn't happen. And then we have her fighting a war against people who have found a way to induce triggers, which is a thing that they always kind of thought was not possible. Like just the effect, the, the, the effect of trying to make someone trigger almost made it so where they didn't. But someone has figured out a way to do it. Um, so she's dealing with all this kind of um, shard whamminess but then they're like, the threat's over. Problems are done. We're good. Um, except for this one remaining thing at, at home base. And so it's like we're at, at the same time being primed to expect the next big threat while also kind of seeing all the threats that we've kind of had in the background. The things we've been worried about have maybe been dealt with. <laughs> yeah. So it's really interesting in that way. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, this certainly marking a kind of transition in in the structure of the story into the next right. act, I suppose. Yeah. So let's we're done here with with the chapters. I guess let's take a minute. We're running way over, so we won't spend as much time as we do this. But let's let's just take a minute and talk about the arc as a whole. Let's talk about arc nine gleaming. And the thing I really wanted to talk about with you as we look back on these chapters is the idea of reflections. Um the the title gleaming is is a light that is reflecting off of another surface um so so you know i was kind of primed throughout my reading to talk about how characters reflect each other and that's something you and i like to do in general when discussing these stories but i think it's it's made very explicit here i mean we have goddess and and uh amy we have victoria and amy we have capricorn and on both sides we have um ashley and 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 Slashly, we have all these people kind of reflecting off each other and comparing and seeing the comparisons. And, and I just it, it's a fascinating move through this idea. 
Yeah, the, I love all of that stuff. We also have this this thing where Victoria is sort of um, being she has these different identities that she's been flipping between. They're all they're all kind of refractions of her. And yeah, yeah. In, in the course of this arc, she she finds that, oh, I can't use this identity here, but this one works. Oh, no, that one doesn't work anymore. I need to use this one. And then she realizes, you know what, like. I need all of these. Mm-hmm. I just need them. I need them to be there for me at different times in different contexts. And yeah. she kind of forms a new, a, a new kind of more stable self out of all of that. Yeah. Um, and it allows her to deal with things that she couldn't have dealt with before. And I think, I think that's the thing at the end of the day, that's what the goddess arc is going to represent to me is this, this moment in the story where um, we have a person who almost very specifically represents the idea of not learning from your mistakes, right? Like, Uh and, and, and through that, that reflection of, of goddess and what happens to goddess of, of what she tries to do and what happens to her at the end of it, our characters grow, our characters learn, our characters make progress and, and have a better idea of who they are. And I think, you know, going forward that's what i think victoria is going to take from it i mean maybe not that explicitly but like that general idea of we have to move forward we have to move we have to do better and and look her relationship with amy is super damaged like the, the, the they got out of this arc with things probably worse than they were before, um, at least on one side of it, I think Victoria is doing better generally, but I think also Victoria just saw like her worst fear literally come true, which is Amy seizing power and doing something with it. Um, things are going to be bad for sure. It's, it's a wild boat book. Things are always going to be bad, but, um, we saw like the rise and fall of goddess as, as this things can't go back to the old way. It, it won't work. Yeah. And, and I think it's pretty crucial. Like, even though things may be worse with Amy, I think that Victoria got m- several things that can be counted as a win for her in this arc. Yeah. I think that's important to give your character some wins because otherwise it's just kind of unremittingly dreary, you know? Um, and th- this story is really good about giving those wins. So, so even as like the stakes of the of the background story become worse and more dire and and bad things happen um you get little little beats of of happiness like kenzie making her breakthrough you know the team kind of coming together tristan and byron kind of um healing um yeah ashley and, and damsel kind of returning as like a pair of friends, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of things that are actually a nice little, little fist pump, um, in what is actually a, a tense and, um, intense, uh, arc. Yeah. I, I like that you mentioned that because this is something you talked about on our Mr. Robot episode of the Doofcast last week was, yeah. um, dire situations with no wins. And that is something that I agree that this arc does a very good job of is, is things are bad. Like we have 15 chapters almost of our characters under the control of someone else, but we still within that give them wins. We give them growth. We, we have them realize things like, and that's why I think the mind control never becomes dull to me is because it's, it's such a, 
a different kind of thing that um, it still allows for character change that can't just be hand waved away as, oh, this is part of the mind control because it's not. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, I don't know if we've said enough about it. I don't know if it's possible to say enough about how how perfectly the alignment type of mind control works for this, because if it were anything more restrictive than that, then it would break the story <laughs> yeah um but if it were anything much less constrictive than that then it would seem like well then they can just like shrug it off yeah but it's it basically kind of reorders their higher order goals and um then they just want to serve her which is the most insidious and awesome form of, of mind control that i've ever seen in fiction yeah i, I think you're right because I, I love that it's it's terrible it's awful it is cruel but it still allows for characters to function in a, mm. like in a narrative way that we just don't get dull. Like the, when I see people complain about how it went on for so long, I'm like, yeah, it, it, it went on for a while, but it wasn't always the forefront of the concern for our character. Like it's, it, it hung out there in the background, but there's still like Victoria is going through Amy shit that is completely independent of the compulsion she has that goddess has on her. The reason why she's going through this shit is because of goddess's compulsion. But it's it's not like controlling her ability to make choices um, in in that conflict. It's not controlling um, the agency she has in that conflict. And that's why it never gets dull to me. Yeah. And, and I feel like, you know, you've set up goddess as this powerful antagonist. You, you need to like the story almost from from the standpoint of like respect. You need to give the heroes quite quite a hard time getting out of this situation yeah it would feel cheapened if they got out of it easily and, and quickly and you know I, I think the story stayed in this space just long enough to really fully explore the ideas of, of what you can do with this kind of mind control and and i think once it had said pre pretty much all it had to say then it left and that that's exactly what it should have done i agree i agree and it ties in like we, we haven't even talked about the decision to make the Tristan Byron stuff happen in this arc um, in this arc about about mind control and this arc about uh, reflections of about about seeing who you are. Um, I, I just think like I would never have thought of tackling this stuff while we're doing that, but it seems to slot in so nicely. This idea of um, at this, the core of Byron and Tristan's story is forgiveness, right? Is that the, the reason they reach the equilibrium they do at the end is because one of them was willing to forgive the other. And, and we have that in the midst of um, all these people doing terrible things to each other. And that it's just this little nugget of, of hope. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's I think we've, beautiful. I think we've said enough about, I think we have about arc nine gleaming. Um, my favorite arc of the story by far. Yes. I, I'm so thrilled with where things are going. Um, I've loved that we got an interlude that kind of stepped back and, and set things up going forward. Um, oh man, I, I'm so excited to see where the story goes next. Me too. I think next week, maybe we'll do the name game for Tristan and Byron. Um, yeah, we're just get It's too much. Yeah. <laughs> too much. So and, and there were a bunch of other names that were told yeah. throughout Valkyries. There's like, just, it's too many, too it's many too names many. this week. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to, maybe we can talk about them in the Reddit. I think that'd be fun. If some of them come back into importance, we can pick them up later. But uh, some of them we know barely enough about. So Yeah, that's true. So now the discussion question. Here it is. Is it coherent, 
to offer second chances if there are some things that are unforgivable? Can there be such a thing as unforgivable? <laughs> I like how you read that. Now it's time for the discussion question. H- here it is. <laughs> <laughs> Gonna say it now. <laughs> no, it's a good question. I, I think I, I am fascinated by people's responses to this because I-, I think that's something that the book book is exploring. Um, this idea of unforgivable um, is is the can can you forgive the unforgivable and how and is that and 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 what do we look at people that do that or are unwilling to do that yes i have my own thoughts um since it is my question but i i'm going to save them for later all right and that's all we got for you this week on we've got ward you guys are all part of this show so feel free to provide us with advice questions or thoughts on this week's reading you can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85. And Matt's, is that more denimail? I couldn't think of a joke. That's okay. If you're not already <laughs> subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find all the other shows we do over at doofmedia.com. This week on the Doofcast, I think we're doing our Halloween special episode, Matt. We're just going to talk about some spooky things. Awesome. Just just things. Yeah. Just some spooky things. And also, uh, don't forget, guys, Book Club is meeting this Friday at 9.30 p.m. Central Time over on our YouTube channel. Um, We're going to be talking about Frank Herbert's Dune. It's going to be a really good episode. So uh, even if you haven't read Dune in a while, come on by, hang out talk about the book with us it's gonna be fun awesome yeah um and if you like any of our shows and you want to support them consider donating to our patreon account patreon.com slash doof media you can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford supporting us on patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our quarterly fan art contest and costume contest uh this month q a sessions access to live streams of our recording sessions and our ex- excellent discord chat special thanks to new bidoof uh, wormhole at the one dollar <laughs> level thanks so much we appreciate it yeah thank you and as always uh make sure you go over to wildbow's patreon patreon.com slash wildbow and donate to him as well this is his world we're just playing in it and if you can't afford to donate right now that's absolutely okay you can instead help us out by heading on over to apple podcasts and leaving us a rating and a review this week's review comes from dan t who gives us five stars and says I've been following this podcast since it started as We've Got Worm and always look forward to new episodes. When it started, I'd already finished Worm. And if you haven't read that, go find it now. And liked the point by point discussion of the story from start to finish. Then when it moved on to the ongoing sequel series Ward, I was a little behind in my reading, so I had to do a lot of catch up before I was able to listen to the podcasts. Never listened to them before reading the stories, as they're highly spoilerific, but only through the place in the story that each episode discusses. So it's okay to listen to one if you're past that point in reading, but not quite caught up to the latest one. I like this because it's like it's a review, but he's also like instructing people. Yeah, good. With Worm, a gimmick was that one of the podcasters was just reading it for the first time and giving his comments on each chapter after he finished. The other one had read it, but refrained from spoilers. For Ward, however, we're all in the position of reading and reacting to the latest installment at once. It's always interesting and insightful, pointing out all the sorts of things you might have missed on your first reading. One of my favorite podcasts of all time. Dan, wow, thank you so much. I, like, I was joking while you were reading it, but like, 
the point of these reviews is supposed to be like, hey, new listener, um, do you want to listen to this? I don't know. Read this review. And so it's, it's really helpful when you kind of instruct how we do things. Um, yeah. We appreciate what, it. What a helpful what, what a helpful review. I, I, we've been doing this so long. I, I forgot that like not everyone knows the shtick. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Appreciate that. And thank you, everyone that takes the time to go uh, give us a rating and review. It really does help us uh, get more exposure and, and introduce new people to our podcast and hopefully the parahumans universe because it's it's great. Yeah. All right. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with Arc 10 Polarize. Wait, wait, it's called Polarize. That's not good. <laughs> it's not good at all. Uh,